a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. On today's Zero Limits podcast, we are chatting to an Australian soldier, former Australian soldier, Shane. Uh, his name is uh, Peter Rudland. Uh, he finished up as a sergeant, so Sergeant Peter Rudland. He's now since uh, retired, um, which we will touch on just shortly why. He is a current ambassador for the RSL here in Australia. Yep, return service league. Yep, he joined 1989. This is the buyer he has sent us and uh, what's on the internet. He joined 1989 and spent time within the 3rd Battalion back in the early days, 89 to 94, which is a crazy time for the 3rd Battalion. Romba Stomper was kicking around then too. <laughs> <laughs> spent time, he actually joined the SAS, got selected. Imagine joining the SAS back in 94. That would have been fucking hectic. hectic. Oh, they would have beat man. the shit out of you. That would have been fucking loose. They would have, beat, they would have waterboarded you. That was the first test, waterboarding. <laughs> so SASR, then he went to uh, 4RAR, which is now known as uh, 2 Commando. Um, he did a bit of time parachute training school. With those days of parachute training school, I was actually down there. 0709? I, I wasn't down there 0709, but I did meet Pete at the parachute training school. Cross paths. We cross paths because he is a PJM, which is parachute jump master. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking he was just down there. Maybe he just come down for the jumps that we were on. Hang but on he him. was, yeah, he was crazy. Uh, good dude from what I remember anyway. And then uh, he deploys to Afghanistan uh, 2010 with the 2 Commando Regiment. However, he was wounded in action. As we might know, or as, as most of us would know, 21st of June 2010, three Australian commandos and a US soldier were killed in a helicopter crash. Uh, those three soldiers are Scott Palmer, Timothy Applin, and uh, Benjamin Chuck, our Australian soldiers. So rest in peace to those boys. And it turns out that during this this helicopter crash as well, it had the three KIA had a seven wounded in actions as well from Australia, one US KIA, and the US also had four wounded in action on this helicopter. So there's a lot of guys on this uh, one a lot bird. Of, a lot of bodies. And... 
from what I've watched on the video that's just been released by the RSL, it's a bit of a you know a bio on a video bio on uh, Pete. He tells a story of what happened from what he remembers of, of the crash and said that you know the boys the the three KIA one was in front of him, one was behind him, and one was just on the other side of the. You know, said so they were just so lucky. Just you couldn't imagine it. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Again, reading off his bio, he obviously discharged later in in 2017. Obviously, post recovery and all that type of stuff. And I'm pretty sure he had pretty extensive injuries, mm. which again we'll touch on shortly when we get him on. His deployments: he did Cambodia '93, Iraq bombing, which is a campaign in '97, East Timor '2000, Iraq '2003, British Exchange which would have been super cool. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Timor-Leste, 2006, Afghanistan, two, 2010. So he's, he's, got, he's got some fucking trips up. He's got a resume. This guy has a resume. Not even that, he is, uh, he is well-known throughout the community, the military community, and is a humble, just smiles, just, just one of those, oh, everything I can mm. remember of him, you know, seen him back <laughs> far out, like, what's that, 15-plus years ago. Yeah. Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah, he was just one of those upbeat human beings that just motivated people. So I'm, I'm actually keen to get him on and have a chat. So let's, uh, let's get him on. Pete, how are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. And you guys? Yeah, really Super. good. Really good. We really appreciate you coming on and uh, telling your story. You've uh, popped up all over the internet lately because you've become an RSL ambassador. I think there's a YouTube video that's just come out. I watched it and crazy, crazy story. And we we definitely wanted to get you on to tell that side of the story. You can share it here in Australia. Cool, thanks. But he, um, it was it was uh, very kind of ABC actually for that for particular story. You know, they I think that made me look pretty good. The editing was um, was amazing <laughs> on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, mate. Let's just start right off from the start. Tell us where you grew up. You know, what led to you joining the Defence Force. Um, it's a pretty easy one. I, so I'm a West Australian boy. I was I was born in Northern, even though I tell everybody York because I have that embarrassment, the stigma yep. um, that goes with it. Um, but yeah, no, great place, you know, to be born. Uh, went to, to Perth to, to do my schooling. Um, was really lucky. Went to a fantastic high school, Perth Modern School. Yep. Um, and uh, from there. I just counted the days down to um, I could join the Defence Force. But he, well, as soon as that. I was 17. Oh, yep. Hang on. Now we got you. We got you. Got your video. Yep. yep. Something was going on with my phone then. Now you're up. It's been all weird. But, yeah, so um, I was the legacy kid. Um, so uh, I suppose, where do you start with that one? So, so basically as a kid, when I was born, I was given up for adoption. Um, I was adopted by my grandparents. Um, my grandfather was a World War II veteran and he was, um, he, he had, um, shrapnel wounds to his head and shoulders. So he had a tumor inoperable. Um, so he pretty much, he was living with, with knowing that one day that tumor would, would eventually kill him. Yeah. So it did, um, before I was born. Um, so my, my grandmother took me on as her child, um, and brought me up. So they, they're the people I refer to as sort of mum and dad. Um, my natural father was always in the mix. He was around, um, but had his own family and, and went on with that. And my natural mother, um, she she sort of did the runner. Um, she was only 16 uh, when I was born and I was the second child. So she did the runner and went on with her own life. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Um, Interesting. Don't no, you think it's a very common practice for a lot of 
soldiers and diggers like ourselves uh, that have that tougher upbringing. You can't tell me a soldier that's had a a happy life growing up and then joined the military. Officers, perhaps. Officers, yeah. (laughs) We've all had that real adversity growing up and then for some reason we just have that same mentality. We join the military to either just clean up or just or just escape it. Yeah, or escape it. There yeah. was a few sales that I served with, and down the down the years of knowing him, you're like, oh, he was adopted. He was adopted. Yeah. He doesn't have a father. He doesn't have a mother. It's just like, man, yeah, shit. What's your thoughts? And I, I think that um, we're looking we're looking for a place to belong. Yeah, you know, something to sort of grab hold of, and and um, you know, and, and have that purpose. You know, I think as a kid, you know, I used to look at that people who had, you know, two parent families and, you know, I think they all, you know, they're all happy families. And, you know, I used to look up and go, Oh, I want some of that. Um, and then, you know, I knew I was never going to get it. And I knew that that defense was about mates, you know, yeah. or, or was very much back in those days. So yeah. um, I was always happy to sort of reach out and look into that mate world and find out, you know, where I fitted into it. But it, I suppose the real weird thing was, you know, as I sort of like went through life and I had more contact with those people I grew up, actually found out their lives were shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, their, their domestic situation was like so bad, you know, mum and dad violence or, you know, just, you know, they, they, they weren't happy families. Mm. You know, um, and I suppose, you know, for us as defence too, you know, defence isn't always a happy family either. Yeah. You know, there's always a lot of controversy and conflict within the environment um, until we find our own little little niche where we slot into. So, yeah. I suppose it is a family, and that's why I always say to everybody, you know, we're family by choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, what stage – you obviously had the influence of your granddad, the military background. Is, it, is there any other third party that made you join or, you know, give you that influence to join up? Oh, well, I was really lucky. I was a legacy kid. So yeah. pretty much, you know, from, from birth I was a legacy kid and I got to an age where I thought, well, I want to be involved in this, and I started going on the camps. The camps were – so, you know, all the legatees were, you know, ex-servicemen for Western Australia, you know. So um, they all had their story to tell and they were good people who cared about the welfare of us. Um, and the the camps were co-run with the SAS. Um, the, awesome. So once a year there was a camp run in Bustleton for 10 days and guys from the regiment would come down and, um, you know, put us through abseiling, boating, all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, from, from that point on I thought, you know, this is what I want to be. I want to be like these guys. You know, they, they cared about the welfare of others um, and they did their job really, really well. Yeah, right. How awesome was that? How old were you at the time, Pete? Like eight? Well, I started doing the clips around the, the about the 12-year-old mark, I think. I think I was about 12 or 13 you, when yeah. I went down to my first one. Can you imagine being a 12, 12-year-old kid going on camp with, like, the SAS? <laughs> I reckon that's awesome. <laughs> To be honest, back in those days, I didn't really know what the SAS were. You know, to me, they were soldiers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were a bunch of dudes who, who were happy to give up their time for us and tell us really cool stories. And then as I became more aware um, of, you know, like what they did and, and so on, um, then I, that was where I started to get the focus saying, you know, I want some of this. I want, I want to reach out and do this one day. Yeah. So, right. um, so at that age, Pete, some of those um, SAS fellas, they would have been uh, late Vietnam era or they would have almost phased out? Mate, there were some some awesome legends amongst that group and one of them, uh, a guy called Ian Rasmus, and um, Ian uh, took a, an interest in me um, and when it came time for me to do my own essay selection, 
Uh, Raz, you know, gave up a lot of his weekends to go out and do Navixes with me in, in WA and, oh, cool. um, and just spent time, you know, shaping me uh, to have the right attitude to do the selection course. Um, and it was just, you know, great to be mentored. You know, Ian had four tours of Vietnam up. He was an absolute oh, legend. Fucking hell. So, you know, having those sort of guys sort of helps. Yeah. So just in regards to Legacy, we're talking about Legacy Australia, the non non-for-profit organisation. That's the one, mate. Yeah, mate. So obviously, let's just put it out there. Obviously, they've you know you're a product of what they actually do. So that sounds like they're doing what they plan to do, which is very rare for a non for profit. You know, a lot of them take a lot of money and don't dish a lot out. So it sounds. You got uh, to remember with legacy, though, guys. You know, like legacy was, you know, is, is bloody you know hundred odd years old. Yeah, you know, it's, it's two veterans in a bloody bunker sitting there talking about, you know, if I die, I look after my family, you know, and it went from there. So, you know, like-minded guys after the war got, got together um, and and fulfilled that that obligation to each other about looking after each other because, you know, so many guys, you know, died during the war. There was a lot of kids and a lot of families who needed help. Mm. Um, so, you know, the guys stood up and, and Legacy has always been really true to itself. You know, it's an organisation about looking after the widows and, and, and the families, the children, and, and that's what it's continued to do. So, um, yeah, I don't ever think Legacy will be an organisation that take money. I think yeah. Legacy will be an organisation that give money and give time. No, that's so awesome, I, mate. I, I love yeah. them. They, they shaped me and made me into who I am. Hey, that's enough for us to start, uh, you know, jump on yeah. and promote them as much as we can. It's also one of the great causes that um, I think many service people through the Navy, Army, Air Force have done Legacy Week or like the day they go to the local city mm. sell pins and badges. Um, I've done one at the MCG and I've done one in Martin Place. Yeah, I've um, done it at Martin Place. Dressed up in uh, pollies. And- dressed in our whites and it's it's fucking <laughs> awesome. And like yeah. you're out there, you know, obviously you're not you're not getting pissed like bloody Anzac Day, but still you're out there in your whites, you know, you're meeting chicks and just obviously, obviously the idea <laughs> Is to sell sell pins and badges, right? But for anyway, for the young sailors, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you have that drive to join the military, and in you know, what what is the process? You know, it was nineteen, you know, the late eighties. So it was a long time ago now. That you know, there was no internet. Would have been far. Uh, yeah. You had the newspaper. So yeah, how did you do it? Do you what? go? Is there like defence force recruitment officers? You just went to go. Hey, I want to be the ass. <laughs> We're making him feel old here. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, no. Carry a um, pigeon. I, when I was when I was in high school, I, I used to have to travel like a, I'd catch a bus into Perth and then catch the train out of Perth to go to school. You know, it was like a half day event, just going to school and coming home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, down near where where I caught my bus, the number fifty five in Barrack Street, Perth. Bloody Perth recruiting was just down the road, <sighs> and um, I was that little kid who went in there and sat in there and looked at them like a creepy guy saying, "I want to join the army. I want to join the army." Um, during high school, and when I got to sixteen and nine months, I um, I went down and said, "Can I have my paperwork?" And I'm a, I took all my paperwork home to my mother and asked her to sign it, which she refused to, um, you know, because of the, the circumstances, I suppose, with dad. So she was she didn't, you know, she was frightened of that. Um, but eventually, I, I sort of said, "I'm I'm going to run away and go bush anyway." Um, <laughs> so one way or another, you'll you'll be without me. So you might as well just sign it. At least you know where I am, um, which she did. Um, so the day I turned 17, I was standing there with my paperwork in hand saying, okay, I'm ready to go. So Yeah, yeah it's cool. Us. Right. From there, yeah, it was cool. I couldn't, uh, my 17th birthday was, was so cool. I was just standing there as smug as anything going, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
But it was, like I did, the funny thing was I, I did all my testing and all that sort of stuff, and you didn't know what core you were going into back in those days either. Um, you you know, you got to Kapuka and you had to show you had the goods to go to where you wanted to go. Yeah, right. But um, even though with all the background that I had in, in you know, with defence, uh, I didn't really understand things as well as that I, that I should have. Like for me, I wanted to be a tunnel rat. Mm. I, I, I wanted to be a tunnel rat because, you know, I was a little fella. I like, you know, dark spaces, all that sort of crap, you know, as a kid. But he, um, so I wanted to do that. But I figured tunnel rats were also in pioneers within the battalions, not just an engineer thing. And then when I got to um, recruiting and I was saying, you know, this is what I want to do. They said, we don't have tunnel rats anymore, mate. We've got to do it. So, but I always knew that I wanted to go to the battalion anyway. Um, so I said, well, you know, infantry all the way, you know, get me to Kapuka. And I left very shortly after. Um, they were kind enough to let me finish off the football season. Um, so I finished the football season off and left shortly after that. But he, and yeah, there was, they, what court do you want to go? So it's <laughs> a weird thing. They used to give you this thing called a green guide. So, um, you know, about halfway through Kapuka, they'd say, okay, you're, you're academically sound for this core, this core and this. You know, you show the attributes of this core and so on. So you get your little list. You know, some people had, you know, 100 things on their list. Some people had three. You know, that's sort of independent <laughs> on how right you were. And because I, I was just totally disrespectful to the whole process, I'm just like, I just want to go to infantry. I, I really don't care. And they're like, oh, you know, you did all right in your, in your boss aptitude test and you did this. And you, I don't care. I just want to go to infantry. Just leave me alone. Yeah. So um, they thought it was funny at the end. And, you know, week 10, they, they told you what core you got. So they took you down to the foyer. They read the name out. And I had the coolest sergeant in the world, uh, a guy called Keith Smith, and he was going through all the lists and he was talking, you know, Jones, you know, you got this, and Smith, you got this, and he gets to me and he goes, rub them, and he looks up with a little cocky look on his face and he goes, signals. I've got And then and he said, oh, if everyone's got any problems, you can come back to me at the end of this, you know, you can line up at the office. So I'm just sitting there half smiling and half not thinking, is he taking the piss out of me or what? Yeah. And then um, so we're going through, you know, um, there's probably, you know, five, six people didn't get the cause they wanted. So um, they were at the, the office and he, he actually said, you know, rather than wait to the end. So, you know, everybody's going through and I could hear the conversations. One dude <laughs> went in there crying. He was just straight up bawling his eyes out. I want to go to infantry. I don't want to go. I want to go to ordnance. And then, uh, yeah, man, it was so funny. Well, in his case, he wanted to be an ammo technician. Yeah. And that was all he wanted to do, you know. Yeah. So Fair I sort cool. of got it, but Paul was probably going a bit far. And um, the sergeant just kicked him out of the room. Get out. you got your ordnance. I'd never have you in my core anyway. I was just having a joke with you, you know. So I'm sort of thinking, hmm, maybe he's doing the same to me. So um, he gets me in there and he does the, okay, mate, um, you know, yours is a hard one. You know, everybody was very clear on that you wanted to go to infantry. Um, but, you know, you did well on your Morse aptitude testing. Um, you did well across a couple of things there. You know, and there was a bit of a conflict on where you could be best used. You know, you're a little fellow, fellow you could have gone to, to tankies as a tank driver. Mm. And he's going on and on and on. And now I'm starting to really think the hole is getting big on stuff. And um, he's, he's got anything to say for yourself. And I said, oh, I'll be taking week 10 discharge. And he's like, what? Because in those days, you used to be able to pull a pin in week 10 oh, if yeah, you right. thought the defence force wasn't suited to you. Um, and I was like, yeah, no, I'll be taking my discharge, thanks, Sarge. 
Uh, and he's like, no, nah, you've got to, you know, take this on the chin, you know, you, you know, step up to where required. And I was like, this is bullshit, Sarge. I'm just not doing it. So he came over and he gave me a cuddle. He said, I just loved it. You love infantry so much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, right. Yeah, you've got <laughs> he was hey, the coolest old fellow, man. He was so cool. Pete, oh, back in awesome. the uh, 89, Kapuka would have been fucking chaos. For yeah, no political things. correctness. There would have been absolute mayhem down there. Yep. There was only two genders back then. The same buildings there are now still. <laughs> we were we were separated. So females were in Delta Company. Um, you know, I was in, in Charlie, which was really cool because you could look up the hill and you could watch the chicks in the window. Um, you know, <laughs> with, with the young 17-year-old. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> Can't do that now. <laughs> uh, we were um, – we, we really didn't have anything to do with them, you know, like – the girls were off doing their things and we were off doing ours, you know. Yeah. The only time you got to catch up with them was you know, up the boozer um, if you were lucky enough to get there on a Friday. Um, but he, there was a, a strong sort of, we'll, we'll call it a drinking culture, um, but it wasn't a bad one, you know, like it was a culture about mates looking after mates. Mm. You know, you went and had a beer and part of that, that culture was, you know, like to, to being mature enough to be able to handle the beer and not stuff up in an environment that, you know, you get severely polaxed for if you did. Because, you know, you ended up in the cells if you did something stupid there. Yeah. So um, it, I think it taught guys a bit of maturity mm. where, you know, now we say to them, oh, you can't have a drink. You know, oh, you know, you're going to stuff up. You can't have a drink. And then we wonder when they do stuff up. You know, we, we jump up and down about it in the rank structure. You know, oh, we didn't, you know, we trusted them and they stuffed up. The thing is we don't place enough trust, you know. Yeah. From the time you join the Defence Force, you're an adult yeah. uh, and you need to be given that opportunity to be one, in my opinion. You know, if we keep telling them no, 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 that's going to fuck up. It's expected. Yeah. Obviously, did you see that difference between, you know, the regular infantry and then obviously SF? SF get that little bit more taught you're an adult, look after yourself type thing? Oh, there's a definitely, you know. When I got um, to the regiment, I was only 22, so I was still a baby. Um, most of the guys were, you know, late 20s to 30s. They were married. You know, they had kids. Um, they were, you know, they'd already gone through that younger phase anyway. So, you know, it wasn't all about drinking for them. But, you know, remember the old marriages, as soon as they get on the piss and they go somebody, they go they go wild. Because they're like, I'm away from my wife and kid. <laughs> <laughs> so... You do have some some weird sort of crossovers, but the battalions, um, yeah, there's younger guys, yeah. you know, you are, and you've got to expect a little bit of play. You know, you've got to expect people to stuff up, and you also, you know, in rank wise, you've got to have a bit of maturity to say, "Well, okay, I accept this." You know, what's what's gonna what's the worst that can happen here, and mm. deal with it. You know, we're training people for war, and we're saying you can't have a drink. Yeah, so. Exactly. Anyway, that's the way I see. Yeah, it's fucking shit. Yeah. So let's. Uh, so you get to. Let's. We'll go back. We'll go back to IETs. You get to IETs. You're just infantry. Just Sing infantry. Out. Infantry. Yeah. Infantry. Like you yeah. would have smashed through IETs. But he, um, I, I found it easy enough. Um, I, I thought I was fit enough. We were unlucky enough to um have a platoon commander who was back crap crazy, um, <laughs> and he. Oh, mate, here's nuts. He was like on his third core. And he sort of took delight in burning people and breaking them. Yeah. You know, like, you know, you'd go for a pack march and he'd have a, a pillow in, in his pack and, and bloody, you know, the rest of us would have, you know, 20, 30 kilos, whatever. Um, and he'd, you know, have us running with all this sort of stuff. And 
Um, one by one, we got guys broken. I think something like the statistics for the platoon were 74 people went through the platoon and 14 marched out. So we actually marched out in, in two ranks, not three. Um, the guy went on to be removed from the School of Infantry for your incompetence. Um, but, but it was, you know, there was that that attitude, I suppose, back there where he thought, you know, where he, we were his toy and he could play with us as much as he wanted to. Um, we lost a lot of really good guys out of that platoon. So that was long tan platoon back in, um, I don't know, June 89. Yep. Um, but, you know, some fantastic guys got through out of that 14. And actually, out of the 14, a few of us ended up in the regiment together as well. So oh, cool. I suppose it did teach us a bit of resilience. Yeah. So you finish IETs and then you get your first post into your first infantry battalion, the 3rd Battalion, the mighty 3rd Battalion. Maddie, Maddie talks about this like it's his lost son he never had. The 3rd Battalion, <laughs> mate, it's just one of those battalions It's just being airborne, it was just next level. Just, just a brotherhood that was just, yeah, crazy. The Spirit of Corps in the battalion was, was amazing. You yeah. know, like, you know I, I got there on my 18th birthday. Um, so I actually marched in on the 30th of September, 1989. Um, the whole battalion was on stand down after um, Kangaroo 89. So there's only, a, you know, a few of us around. And we, one of the guys had stuffed up and packed the wrong uniform. So we had to wear battle dress. We all looked like dicks. <laughs> you know, like, it was just ridiculous, you know, like in summer, rocking up in battle dress and all that sort of stuff. And then, um, yeah, those who were around were, were drunk because they were on leave from, <laughs> from 89. Everybody else had gone their families. So, you know, like we were just this spectacle. Like what are these idiots doing rocking up in their old, you know, in battle dress? And then um, there were the rooms were just chaos. And I got taken up to this room. There was no beds in it. There was nothing, just some lockers. It was the old days when we had four in a room. Yeah. And there was a pile of porn in the corner that was over a metre high. <laughs> and I'm just like, what in God's name? And sitting on top of that pile was a trophy called the Bottoms Up Trophy, and it was from the local whorehouse for being the best customer. <laughs> and I'm just like, what am I doing here? Holy fuck. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the best customer. <laughs> oh, yep. fuck. Yes. Yeah. How did you how did you find uh, how did you find battalion life? Loved it. Loved um it. yeah. Initially, um, you know, like it was a, again in that weird time in three hour that us new guys before we had our power course, they couldn't work out what headdress we wanted to they were gonna make us wear. So they made us wear slouch hats amongst the unit that wore bear ups. Oh no. So, you know, twelve that went to the unit. Well, I think yeah, I think there was twelve. The majority of us went to to, th- to three. We just stuck out, you know. We were, you know, if we were on guard, everybody knew we were the lids. You know, I mean, you know, from hundreds of meters, they're like, "Oh, check the lids coming out," you know. <laughs> so um, once we got to, you know, we did our power course. Um, I did mine in November, November eleventh. I think I did mine eighty nine. You know, you got to sort of slot back into it. And you got given a bit of respect because you had your lid, um, you'd done your course. Um, and you're sort of accepted. You just had to get your time up. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was a, it was a great unit that had this huge spread of core. Um, I think that, you know, like I, I really loved being a part of it. I, I always thought it was the best, you know, battalion in the RAR. Yeah. Still do. Yeah, still do. Definitely is. And then um, obviously you get that itch to uh, take it up a notch. Um, again, you grew up uh, in the as a legacy kid and spent a bit of time around the SAS uh, community and – how did that come along? But um, so I was lucky enough in in '93 to get picked to go to Cambodia, and there was only seven of us from the unit. 
Oh. Um, you know, like I didn't get to go because I was the, you know, the best soldier in the company or any of that crap. The RSM guy called Rocket Rundell, um, but he was fond of me because um, I played football and I think he thought I was a good enough footballer. And there was an, one of my best mates, a guy called Dominic Redmond, who played rugby. Um, so I think that I got picked because um, I played football and he liked me and Don got picked because he played rugby and he liked, yeah. liked him. So it was a you know, bit of a ragtag group of us, the seven. We all, you know, we had the calls that they wanted. We, you know, we all see qualified. Um, one of the great shames of my life, but that is what it is. Because <laughs> nobody loves handbag. No. <laughs> what, did, um, what did you do over there in Cambodia? You go. What did you? What happened over over there in, in Cambodia in '93? Mate, it was just a great trip for you know as a young guy. Um, so I suppose just to go back a bit, I, I was um, I was already panelled for the the SA selection course for '93. I'd applied, um, you know, got accepted for the course, and then two days before the course was when the RSM sort of you know called me up and said, um, you know, bloody, do you want to go to Cambodia? And I was like, yeah, shit, yeah, but I'm supposed to be starting selection on Monday. Um, so I rang the squadron, uh, training squadron, and um, I, I spoke to a dude who said, "Mate, go just just go to Cambodia. You know, when you get back, we'll automatically panel you for the next one. But don't don't give up that experience. Don't don't give up operational experience." Mm. So it's like, yeah, duty. So from there, a few weeks later, we sort of did our well build up, and we were in Cambodia, and like it's one of the best trips I ever did. You know, being there, complete autonomy to make the decisions I needed to. On a single man deck with you know with UNMOS, United Nations military observers out on the Vietnamese border, um, you know you you grew up quite quickly. You know you you, to be, you represent the country well, represent defence well, um, plus still be able to drink well and keep your own with the other countries. So, <laughs> and at this at this stage you were what twenty one very young. So how how long did that last over in Cambodia? That operation. Um, so we were supposed to be there for 12 months and I think we ended up being there for seven because I ended up being there for end of mission. Okay. So we did the, you know, like um, mainly the pack-up sort of stuff and then I was lucky enough, once the UN mission finished as such, um, I got to stay in country with, with about 50 other guys um, and girls and, and we did the full pack-up and then, you know, sort of come home after that, which was the 11th of November, um, 93. 93? Yeah, 93. Um, so that was a, a good time to be there. Again, very, you know, maturing for a young soldier. And, um, yeah, mate, it was just a fantastic trip. Tell, can you tell us any stories about it? Like, here, it's like fun, funny times or any, like, scary times with, with um, DC? Oh, there's plenty of funny ones. <laughs> so, so, ones. Okay. so, embarrassing one. Yeah. Um, was out on the border drinking with the Vietnamese. So we used, <laughs> we used to get the helicopters, the MI-17s, the Russian MI-17s, used to fly in and then we would, you know, go into Vietnam and go drinking over there and then jump on the next helicopter and come back. <laughs> How good's that? And, um, oh, mate, it was gold, you know. And um, so I was over there with them drinking and carrying on and then I came back and they had this wine and it was it was like, you know, gecko wine. So there's a gecko inside the wine, yeah, you know, like wow. tequila with wine. And I remember drinking that, and the next thing I remember the next day is I woke up in a paddle, paddy field wearing nothing but my jocks, <laughs> half submerged in water, with a kid poking me with a oh, stick, no. going, "Good Peter, good Peter, wake up! A storm is coming!" And the storm, you know, I looked up, it's like a hundred meters off the ground, clouds rolling in. As you know, these torrential rains came down around me, going, 
What a gear. <laughs> oh, no. This is, this is a third battalion at its finest. <laughs> it, was a, it was a good trip. There's lots of fun. My, my 22nd birthday, I used to have to be back in by, um, like, I think it was 10 or 11 o'clock. You know, everybody had to be back on the base if you were in Phnom Penh. So when you're out on the decks, you do what you want. You know, you yeah. ran your own ops. But um, I'd gone back into Phnom Penh for something, and um, I think it might have been to get my motorbike license, and I had the world's worst haircut. Um, I went in and had this thing, and they shaved the sides of my head. Oh. So, you know, any RSM that would have seen that would have just said, shave the whole thing off, which yeah. is pretty much what happened. Yeah. Um, but I was there for my birthday, so I went out drinking, and I was just like in party central. It was just ridiculous. There was no, I didn't come back by 10 o'clock. I came back about three o'clock in the morning. And then I'm thinking, how am I going to get over the fence to get home? <laughs> so I end up climbing over the barbed wire fence, which took me like an hour, you know, slowly, slowly, not trying to trip anything, doing anything. And I got back in to get caught straight away with the guy sitting there watching me climb over the fence for the last hour. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, I got off the but go to bed. <laughs> So you finish that deployment, you get back to uh, the battalion and then you uh, head out west for selection. Yes, uh, I got back. Um, I was lucky enough to do most of my training in Cambodia for the selection. Um, you know, so it was it was humid, you know, and it, it, the conditions were really, really good uh, to make that training a little bit harder. Um, and then but he came home, did Christmas at home and then went straight on to selection for a you know, Western Australian summer. Mm. So I think that helped me with that that adjustment for the temperatures. It was, it was a pretty hot summer, so it was in its forties. Um, you know, I did selection. Um, you know, hated it and loved it at the same time. You know, probably you know the hardest thing I'd ever done, but also the most fulfilling and the most fun. So yeah, um, yeah, got through selection. It's lucky enough. Um, I've always said I didn't get through because I was smart. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, if I was assessed on today's grounds, there's not a chance in hell I would have got through. Yep. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to be, you know, a little big guy who was, um, you know, dumb as anything and just kept going. You know, yeah. just never give up. And I think um, I got lucky. Yeah. So. And then, uh, so you, you spent a total of about six, seven years within SASR? I stayed there for six. Yep. Um, so, you know, 94 through to 2000. Yep. Um, around the 2000 mark, um, I, um, I needed a change. Uh, you know, just life wasn't great at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, kept stead- stepping on my dick and that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> I needed to make that change. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I stuck my hand up um, to go to then four-hour hours. They were building the capability. Yeah. Um, and was, yeah, to be honest, really, really glad that I did. It was a, a, a great opportunity. Yep, and just to backtrack, 1997 Iraq. Um, so the, the Iraq one that was that was within the regiment. So, um, so they they put a, a composite group together called Hates Troop from two squadrons. So one water, one uh, air, um, one land, and one Kiwi patrol. So the Kiwis joined in as well, and we went over um, to do the recovery of down pilot stuff. Yeah, so um, that's cool. We yeah, there was many parts of that was really cool. I think that was a real eyes wide open sort of look at what the world and our allies had to offer, um, the capabilities that were out there, and how to learn to play with others properly. 
So, yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed that. Even though it was only a very, very short trip, yep. um, it was pretty amazing. Did you uh, do a lot of work? Any collections? Nah, nah. Did you pull the There's trigger? Bloody, um, it was more about, um, you know, like establishing how that would take you know take place. Yep. So basically, I suppose, you know, long story short, they looked at, um, you know, Seals, Delta, Us, um, and we all looked at different ways that we would do the recovery platforms. You know, if you're going to say, you know, take two chinooks, what do you have to take? You know, do you need to put a farp in? Yeah, gotcha. You know, um, how do you identify it? You know, um, sweeping the dars, decide area recovery. You know, once you get on the ground, how do you fight that battle to get um, to the guys? You know, look at all the different what-ifs that could occur along that. Um, so really just looking at a complicated environment and seeing how to, how to come up with the best options that, you know, reduce the uh, chances of it going wrong. Yeah, gotcha. Where I suppose in some of the cases along that, um, there was some really poor inputs, you know, like fuck, we'll just fly around in an aircraft till we find them, pick them up and bring them home. That, well, that doesn't work, you know. So it was good. It was a really, really um, – it was a learning process, which I think set us up really well for what was to come. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So uh, you get back and then you're in the SSR till uh, Jan – 2000, and then, as you said, yep. you spoke about your transition to 4RR. What, why is that? What did what did, what did you change? I was going to get out. I'd had a gut full. Okay. But, he, um, you know, like I, I kept treading on my dick. I'd had a couple of personality <laughs> classes that, um, you know, that didn't let go. Um, and just, you know, things weren't, weren't smooth, mate. Like I said, I didn't give a good account of myself um, on various things that, that um, I could have. One of the things with the regiment as well, when you get into the regiment, it's not like you, you change your position, you know, like in a battalion, do a couple of years in Alpha, go over, you know, get promoted, go to Charlie or, you know, go to support company, come back. When you, you get in there, you know, you could be in a troop for a, an extended period before you go. So um, if you've had a personality clash or done something, you know, that wasn't great, um, that stays with you and it's very hard to shake Um you're with the same people all the time. So, you know, it's that if you don't get along with somebody, well, you're stuck with them, and especially if they have more rank than you, you're well and truly stuck with them. Yeah. So, um, you know, just life wasn't good. Um, and I, you know, I was contemplating the discharge thing anyway. Um, I was thinking of, you know, going across becoming a copper or something like that. And then um, my SM had a bit of a chat to me and said, you know, have you thought about doing this? We need guys to go across. Um, it might, you know, sort of open your eyes back up and make you, you know, feel a bit better. So um, initially I thought, no, nah, dumb idea. But then as I thought about it, um, no, I really liked it. I really liked the idea. And when I got there, I was really happy with the way that I was received and, and the other guys from the Regiment went across as well. Yeah. Because it wasn't only on the, the others. Yeah, right. If the um, Afghan-Iraq war kicked off and you're still sass, would you have – you wouldn't have left, obviously, or, or you'll still contemplate getting out the, the army? Um, oh, I don't know, mate. To be honest, I don't know. You know, there's, um, um, I had a, back in those days, I also had a young family. Um, so my first wife and I had two kids with her. Um, and that, that was a disaster in itself as well. Um, so I don't know, it was, you know, I was a young guy and I was still trying to feel my way out in the world, um, and where I fitted in on that. So, yeah, I don't know. You never. Yeah. So you're back to, back to Holsworthy on the other side of the fence this time. Um, and everyone knows that fence back at Holsworthy that day was a 
three hour and four hour. It was just a we met on the ring road a few times and a couple of scraps here and there. It was, <laughs> it was good old times. Maybe at the mess at the area mess. Um, how, how did you find uh, four hour hour back at that stage? You know, at that stage, give us a rundown on their on their capability because as we know, the current day they are a, you know a certified special forces two commando regiment. So how was it back then as four hour hour? When I first got there, um, it was still, you know, very, very much development. You know, there was only a, a few qualified guys in Bravo Company. Um, and then um, though the beauty of those guys is they were so eager. You know, they were so eager to learn. They wanted their place. Um, and what I liked best about it, they were guys that, you know, like they weren't saying, oh, you know, I want to be SAS or, you know, they just wanted to be commandos and they wanted to be good at that. They wanted to find where that slotted in. and. In those days, there wasn't OPA serials, so they were still trying to, um, again, understand where they fitted in um, on the strategic level. Mm. Um, the It was just a, a unit purely in building and a bunch of guys who were really keen to learn. So it was, you know, fantastic from my point of view, um, being there with a whole bunch of dudes who just wanted to learn. Then there was a small twist in that because then the unit got told they were going to go to Timor in a battalion, conventional battalion role. So um, they then had to look at how, you know, you, to get more people in um, to facilitate that, um, get the, you know, what do you do? You spread your guys out amongst the unit who are qualified or, or you, you know, you keep them in one group and bring all the new guys in. So they looked at all the different aspects, put the battalion together, did the Timor thing, and then at the end of the Timor, um, the unit was, you know, back into role and then developing those OPA serials. So um, they, they gave guys the opportunity, you know, do selection or go to 3 hour or, or, you know, or go to a different battalion. Mm. Um, you know, some stayed on, some didn't. And the unit from that point really took off. You know, it wasn't long after that the, the, um, the tag east capability was presented to the unit, which meant money. And, and then money brings capability. Yeah, so of course. it was a pretty amazing time to be there. Yeah, right. And then obviously in the early days, 2000, you, you do deploy to uh, East Timor as part mm-hmm. of 4RR. How was, how was that uh, deployment? Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really good deployment. Um, you know, the unit did a good job, but, you know, um, for the majority of it, it was a, a very benign environment. You know, the, it was um, almost zero threat. So it was a, a great opportunity to train. Um I, again, had, you know, a good bunch of guys. So uh, I was a 2IC in a um, in a recon patrol to start with um, because the boss wanted to have sergeants as patrol commanders. And then we um, we sort of split patrols a bit and I ended up as a patrol commander um, for a bit. Um, so it was a good trip. You know, it, it gave me some experience um, leading. Yeah. Um, so, you know, good trip. But, uh, yeah, funny, a funny trip. Um, but a good trip. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And then you're lucky enough to uh, go back to uh, Iraq, 2003, on a British exchange. Is that is that long look? Is it? So it started off as a long look. Um, so I I'd separated. So on that Timor trip, I I had separated from my first wife. Okay. Um, you know, she did the kind thing. You know, grab the money, grab the house, and, and roll out <laughs> as they do. Okay, the kind thing. So, uh, Fucking hell. Yeah. You know, set, set themselves up for success. Yeah. Um, oh, anyway. Um, Sorry to hear, Pete. Boy, nah, it is what it is, man. I got no dramas with it. Um, life turned out well for me anyway. Exactly. So, um, but he, um, so they were gearing up to go to Iraq, and I was still going through court 
with her. Um, so I had to withdraw from from the guys going to Iraq, and and they took off, um, and and I was sort of behind, you know, feeling sorry for myself. And then the RSM, um, who's a good mate, you know, sort of said, you know, how much longer you got to go with the court stuff? Um, there's a long look coming up, man. Do you want to go and do that? And um, I said, yeah, bloody oath. So the court stuff finished up. I jumped on the long look. I got in country. Um, I was taken up to a unit um, called 473, so that's special OPs. And I were run by an SAS low one and major. And so he gave me a bit of a brief when I got in, and he said, we're going to Iraq in a couple of days. You coming? And I'm like, yeah, bloody earth. <laughs> so um, they had a couple of um, um, capability deficiencies, so, you know, snipers and that type of stuff. Mm. Um, so I sort of got to fit in well in that little slot. Um, so we went over and we ended up staying on. So they applied for an extension for me. So I just stayed on with them um, and ended up doing about I don't know, seven or eight months in country with them. So yeah, nice. it was a, an awesome trip. Um, yeah. And I got to, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, when you deploy with your own guys and you have your own SOPs and all that, all that is, is, is all well and good. But when you go with a foreign country who, you know, their SOPs are, are quite different from ours, um, you know, right down to off box, you know, firing, um, you know, warning shots and shit like that. So it was a bit weird and there was a, a strange sort of line in there legality-wise what I could do from the Australian legal stance and then what I could do from the British legal stance. So it was really cool. It was a, a maturing trip. Yeah. Where, whereabouts in Iraq was all this? Basra. Basra. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, yeah, the Brits, uh, they copped a, a lot, a lot down that way. Um, how was it? Was it was it a kinetic trip or? Um, a little bit, a little bit. But he, um, it was, mate, it was, it was just a good, good trip as a whole. You know, we Learning we got experience. to do some really cool stuff. Um, but he and I got a, a good feel for the way that the Brits did stuff and how we did stuff, and it really validated me. I'm not saying the Brits are bad or anything like this when I say it. What I mean is that um, it really let me know that Australia do things well. Mm. You know, our planning, innovations, um, you know, our people. Um, you know, we, we we just do things well. Yeah. No, I definitely, definitely understand that. Just to quickly backtrack again, um, a common theme for our guests is September 11, 2001. Uh, obviously, 9-11 happens and it changes the course of uh, our lives for the next Forever, especially uh, Afghanistan. Uh, um, you know, the first trips for the US to Afghanistan were a month later. Yeah, a, a month later. And <laughs> did they have that plan already? Did they? Yeah. So, w- was there any talk during four hour about Afghanistan at that stage? Um. Yeah. Back in you know, sort of like two thousand and one, sort of stuff. You know, when when something goes, you know, down on such a huge level, you know, I mean, everybody's looking about how they get their foot in the door for that. Mm. Um, you know, clearly in those days, SASR, we're, we're going to have some sort of opportunity on that. And then I suppose it then looked about how the command shaped the secondary involvement. Um, so there was always, you know, talk about, you know, it moving forward. Um, you know, I didn't really think too much of it at the time. You know, you, you cross your fingers and you hope that, that something's going to reflect that. You know, something will come out. Um, and in the due course of time, it did. It was, you know, the, the early engagements for 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 RAR were um, were really minimal. You know, I mean, they did a lot of base security. They didn't do a lot of, you know, 
you know, um, um, strategic operations. Yep. But, you know, that grows through time and, and, and capability and confidence. So the guys gave a good account of themselves and, and you know, bit by bit um, with each one of those trips, they got to do more and more until, you know, the beast that evolved only a few years back where the guys were really, you know, pack and punch. Yeah. And then, uh, again, back to East Timor, 2006. All over the shop. Yeah, <laughs> back again. <laughs> and this is obviously the stage where t- uh, Timor's kicked off again. They're just starting to burn down everything and – uh, Ronaldo was out there going crazy, and not yeah. the uh, soccer, soccer not, player. Not the soccer player. <laughs> oh, Ronaldo, he was a funny guy. I got to spend a bit of time with him. So, yeah, um, I did the security stuff up on on his villa for a while. Um, he's a unique into, uh, individual. Um, opportunity afforded to him by everybody, you know, to really, you know, have that chance to stand up, be. Um, you know, be influential within his country to be, you know, um, to be a leader. Um, but he was a very selfish individual. Um, he really only cared about himself. Um, so in the end, you know, his demise was his own creation and warranted. Um, but it was a really good trip, really, really good trip. I, I enjoyed that trip on so many levels. Our guys got to have a lot of fun. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just really good there, to be there supporting them. We were, I was lucky enough to be on the first aircraft in. Yeah, right. Um, there was so the choppers were supposed to get in there first, um, but there were some issues with winds and fuel, so um, they didn't make it in. I think they made it as far as Same from memory, because um, they sort of come were supposed to hit and then come across. They didn't, so our Steve one thirty hit the ground first, and it was a nice stress. We just you know walked off, took up some positions, sat down, and smiled while everybody else came in, and then they took over our positions and we left. Um, so it was a nice, easy sort of day, um, and then it sort of heated up from there, and it was a bit more fun. Yeah. What was the area of operations for for our, and what was the role? Um, the area of operations was pretty much everywhere. Yeah. So it was cool. We had to, you know, like secure the point of inventory for the Canimbala comes alongside that type of stuff. Um, if there was any. Um, Groups causing dramas, we would, you know, fight in those areas, try to suppress that. Um, a lot of it was a, a lot of the key leadership engagement stuff, you know, with, um, you know, President, Prime Minister, um, both having very different views on how they seen their their, um, their country playing out. So that, that was interesting just to be in there and that strategic sort of understanding. Um, then, you know, again, the other players in the game, Ronaldo, how he, he sort of inserted himself into the mix um, and the potential for greatness, and then so much failure. Mm. So it was it was really a, a cool way to um, to again learn a different form of maturity for for me and and the other guys, I suppose. Yeah. Um, to play the game a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Question: Who is Ronaldo, Timor president? No, I think he wanted to. He ended up becoming like a the militia leader. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, and then end up getting yeah. killed. Oh yeah! How, how ironic! He was, a, he was a reasonably young man um, who was seen as being quite dynamic. So you had this leadership across this, the country that had conflict between where their alliances laid. Is you know some towards Australia, some towards maybe China and other areas. Um, so it was a strange dynamic starting to happen within the, the country's leadership. And then this young fella coming through who was a Fretman leader who was respected. Um, 
but then let that power go to his head. So he got a lot of briefings from the, the president um, to sort of, you know, how to learn to mature into the position, but he um, just kept pushing back mm. um, and digging holes and then he he pushed back against us so much that we had to, in the end, um, sort of let him have his own way. Um, to that point, he, he moved from the country into the city and he was across from the three RAR position at the um, at the airport, um, and he was openly using weapons, which you weren't allowed to do that. So the three hour guys arrested him. He uh, ended up in jail. He then escaped from jail because of his sympathisers let him out, and then he continued to cause havoc until someone shot him. That's probably the nicest way to say it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, wow. yeah. Good old Timor. Yeah. Timor was yeah, a. Less than Yeah, yeah. Timor was. A, it was a fun for me. It was a fun deployment as well. What, was, what year did you crack? I went two thousand seven. I missed 2006 because I actually had a uh, parachute crash and popped my shoulder out. <laughs> so a whole year of uh, broken platoon. Um, That'll take you out to tuck those elbows in. <laughs> Looking back in hindsight, I should have. <laughs> Something you only learn after you break yourself. Um, uh, we all break ourselves. Yeah, I know, far out. <laughs> Ultimately, that's probably why they stopped the whole So you were, you were coming into land and your arms are still out you didn't have them pulled in. Yeah. And yeah, what you hit nice. the ground, yeah, I and just fell backwards and just pop, pop my shoulder out. Oh, shit, done, yeah. mate. The right. people broke broke legs and arms and backs and necks and. I've, think, I've never parachuted. How fast do you come in into the deck? Like fast or how heavy? Ask the para jump master. He he'll know a bit more. So generally about four meters per second on the old canopies. Yeah, they say it's like the equivalent of fuck. jumping off a two story building, hitting the ground. Holy fuck! Like if if there's not someone knocked out or hurt, it'd be a, it's a miracle. So obviously everyone's knees who have been uh, oh, you're bust, parachuters, yeah. everyone's <laughs> knees are fucked. Struggling. <laughs> no, not those who actually do the drills probably. It's just the guys who don't do the drills. I can't yeah. make that. That's a PJI speaking there. That's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Far out. Um, you. Yeah, so at what stage does 4RAR become 2 Commando? That was, what, 2007-ish? Um, um, 2009, I think it was. Oh, yeah. It's pretty yeah, which later, is really right? bad. I should know that off the top of my head because I was one of those original <laughs> guys. Um, but he, I think it's the nineteenth of June. You know, anybody from from, from two day would be sitting there who's listening would be going, "Pete, you wanker." Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> I, thought, I reckon so they probably won't know either. Coming, <laughs> it was coming for a while. Um, it was the we. There was a whole bunch of throwarounds, like, you know, is it going to be called, you know, Fort Commando and all this sort of stuff and, you know, what it would be. And the, the CEO at the time was, was Paul Kenny, um, who was basically, you know, the, the, the father of commandos. He, he had held all the positions within the unit um, and was very unit-focused. Fantastic guy, really fantastic guy. The commander, lucky um, to have him as the boss now. But, um, you know, so Paul sort of, you know, had, had his thoughts and, and became – to, you know, the second commando regiment, first one being the reserves, second one being us. Um, so that's where it came from. And plus there was the design management for the hat badge, you know, where there was about, I don't know, bloody say 10 different badges, um, different configurations where PK then said, well, you know, I want this one. So that's really how it came about. Yep. It was, you know, no great big story except, you know, the, they were, the thoughts were there and PK um, ran with the one that he liked the best. So prior to them being two commando, if you went, if you got posted, or if you went to four RR, you were obviously trained in that special op- operations sort of setup. 
and then obviously it changed to two commando, and those people that are already in, they would have just done like the transferred to be a commando. Is that, that how it works? As long as you had the ECN of 079, so you had your ECN of a commando, so you'd done your reinforcement. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, when it changed, you know, there was a parade, you, you know, and the new hat was on. The old one was off and the new one was on. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cool. When, 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 that, when did that selection process or the, the reinforcement cycle come into play? Um, the reinforcement cycle, so the, there was qualified – Guys, when I first got there in 2000, so I'm assuming that's about, you know, um, so 98, 99, the course was being structured by, um, from from guys from the regiment yep. um, and then being run. And then, so the whole thing, it's always been a building phase. You know, yeah, you got to remember, you know, the reinforcement cycle to be in the unit in those days, compromise probably or compromise, uh, um, I can't bloody say the word, but, you know, it was part of, you um, you know, maybe uh, the selection course or the commando training course, your uh, your para course, uh, and then single med course. Yeah. You know, in time, that's evolved to be very similar to what the um, the SASR reinforcement cycle is. So, you know, yeah. um, SASR do, you know, selection course, patrol weapons course, patrol course, para course being the, the main one sweep. And then after that, followed on by, you know, demolition signals, you know, insertion, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, between a 12 and 18 month suite of courses to get guys ready to go into the squadron uh, for for Perth side of things and, and commandos is, is very similar, so a little bit shorter because they, some of the courses don't have to be as specialised in certain areas. Yeah, gotcha. So cool. the, what, how long is the reinforcement cycle now? 18 months-ish? Um, I think, and I mean, I only think because I'm a little bit out of the loop. I haven't done anything on, yeah. a, on a reinforcement cycle. Yeah, of course, cycle. yeah. Yep. Um, but I, I think, you know, uh, Perth is probably still around 18 months and I think um, uh, Commandos is probably 12 um, to 14. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I, I, you know, yeah, of course, don't, yeah. don't hold me accountable for that one <laughs> around that sort of mark. Yeah, right. No, Because I'm sure there'd be somebody going, Jesus, Pete, how could you not know? <laughs> <laughs> when, when you think of it, 12 months is a lot long time to be like operating or like be functioning at, at your best. Yeah, day in day out, you know, fuck, it's crazy. Yeah. That's, that's the hardest thing about it, you know, to, to continually be assessed for that yeah. that you know long period of time and keep focused. And then, you know, the sad thing is, like, you you'll do a course and um, you know you'll go hard at it. You you study every night. You do all the stuff you have to do. Bam, finish the tick in the box. Do the next one, um, and then you know you're almost data dumping the last one. Um, so you become a bit of the jack ball trades master of none, and then you've got to, you know, once you get into your squadron, you need to then find your niche and apply yourself to that yeah. um, and really know that job in and out. So it does make it a bit funky. There's a lot going on inside your head and that that constant um, demand for you to, to excel. Love yeah, it. right. So SOTG's uh, in somewhat full swing, and then you get your first deployment to Afghanistan uh, 2010. Um, yes. Run us through what what, what uh, month was that? Did you land in? Um, so I think we got there on the fourteenth of February. Okay. So um, a bit of bloody Valentine's Day. So lots of hug, hugging and kissing on arrival. <laughs> but he, I got to go on the advance party um, as part of the command group. Um, so we ha- we had an amazing you know trip on. Um, on business class, just, you know, the eight or so of us taking up plenty of space. That was yeah, cool. Yeah, nice. the civvies, you know, yeah, killing it in the plane or looking like, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> no, nah, we, we had a good fight. We, we, um, we got in AMAP there, probably had um, 24 hours on the ground there, and then, you know, into the GAN. But he um, – so, so my boss was, was Mick Lowe, um, and he had a vision to do Shinatu. He wanted he wanted guys on the ground in Shinatu on that rotation. Mm. So we were very focused towards making Shinatu happen, um, you know, looking at all of the, the previous patrol reports and, and anything that came out of that, Look, you know, linking up with the Americans, the Dutch, anybody who tried to get in there. So – the guys, so we had rains, and that was back before we had a you know concrete runway. So the guys couldn't get in country. So myself and the other Bravos, you know, ran around trying to get all our shit squared away for when the boys got in, and then plus you know uh, be part of that process of, of um, assisting with the planning for that. So that was really cool, knowing that we had that that really strong focus um, that we wanted to go. I suppose none of us realised just how big that tsunami battle was ever going to become, though. Yeah. Which was a great part of the trip, though. Yeah. So, you know, obviously prior to you getting to Afghanistan in 2010, uh, the 4th Battalion have already lost uh, Luke Worsley, Jason Marks, and uh, Michael Fussell, and uh, and from the one first commando regiment, uh, Greg Sher. So, you know, how, how was the – obviously it was very, very kinetic at those stages. I was getting a lot of stink. Um, how, how was your deployment coming up? You know, once you once you got in and got settled and started out getting out patrol, but uh, it was cool. It just was what it was. You know, you know, you get a job and you start planning for that. You, you do your planning and you hit the ground and then you roll on. You know, and um, yeah, I mean, every time you go outside the wire, you know, somebody wants to have a shot at you for one reason or another. Um, so you know, you deal with that on the ground with the best way it's seen. Um, but you know, there was no. Um, no drums, if anything. I think, you know, all the boys, they, they welcome a, a good gunfight. Always a, a bit of fun. And bloody um, each one, you know, is, is something different. So I don't know, really know how to answer that one. This is what it is. What, what was really, it? What was a quick story on that. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. So on our very first job, we went out, you know, our warm-up sort of gig. But um, we, were, we went out as a company. So, you know, a shitload of vehicles all rolling, you know, through the countryside. And... Um, we come up on this area and um, the, the Taliban was just crested this hill and the Taliban was saying as soon as they come over the top, you know, we're, we're going to hit them. So, you know, we, we knew that. And um, the, so Bam Bam, um, the Iroquois were, were on station mm-hmm. and they were flying around. And I'm looking down, so, you know, I'm the, in the Bravo vehicle, so I'm right at the back. And I think um, we were the, so we were the lead platoon. So then headquarters behind us and another platoon. So, you know, again, lots of vehicles. And uh, I'm looking down this line and then I look over and then Bam Bam comes flying past me and you could literally reach out and touch him. You know, like the pilot's waving at me like an idiot, you know, as he's flying by. And it was just so cool to see the shit-eating grin on this dude as he flew past. (laughs) And then we got up around the corner and then um, we were like, you know, everybody's all ready for this, you know, this big tick. And then, um, but he, one of the guys or one of the vehicles got a flat tire before the first vehicle crested. So um, we stopped there, changed the formation a bit. And then, um, but he, the guys fixed the tire. And then, as they were putting the vehicle down, they put it down on an ID. Oh, no. So it came down and bounced on an ID. So there was literally an ID, you know, like cent- centimeters away from where these guys were working fixing this tire. Holy fuck. Um, so, 
And all it did was like it, it, it destroyed the vehicle. But the guys, the majority of the guys were in it. We had a couple of indigenous casualties from that one. Um, but all of our guys were, were, were good to go. They were just in the vehicle, lucky as hell. So um, we just ended up getting in the shed fight. The whole, t- whole time the Taliban was in there going, yep, ready for them, ready for them, ready for them. We didn't even make it over the hill. So <laughs> it was a funny one. We were like, yeah, yeah, we've had enough one. Because we end up having to pull an airstrike in on the vehicle and blow our own vehicle up. Yeah. Damage to it. Oh, wow. So, oh, bad day at the office. That's fucking heavy. But the Bam Bam stuff was cool. Just seeing him so close, you could reach out and touch him. Yeah, right. So what was the role for uh, two commando at that stage, SOTG? High-value targets, just in, wipe out a bunch of Taliban, clear out areas. Yeah, yeah, just pretty much on those lines, you know, conduct the strategic um, operations, but identify um, high-value targets, you know, kill or capture, that type of stuff. Yeah. Can't remember the exact throwaway line that we used to use. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kill a lot of Taliban. <laughs> That's always a good one. Interesting. <laughs> um, drive, drive around, piss everybody off. Oi, <laughs> Pete, just to go back to the vehicle you, you blew up with the airstrike, uh, what what vehicle was it? Um, that was a buddy um, Bushmaster. A Bushy. Fuck. You know the funny thing with that? Um, so they called the airstrike in and the first one was a dud. Oh. Bloody, no. uh, so it just struck it. <laughs> on the back end, so we were all laughing at that. And then the second one came in, and it was a partial detonation on, on the back as well. And I think it took three rounds to actually destroy that one. I do I do have it on um, on video somewhere, but, oh, yeah, yeah it's oh. a cracker. <laughs> That's hectic. So obviously like, it was too, too badly, badly damaged to take, take back home or back to the base, so you just blew up on the side of the road. Fuck. Yeah, I'll, if heavy. they get a hole breach in it or anything like that, or the or the chassis are twisted yeah, during yeah. the detonation, there's no point saving it anyway. Yeah. Um, and then, like, there was, we had another one. Um, so where was that? Uh, had another one, and then we got um, U.S. forces in. So striker came in um, to do a recovery, and they were spewing. When they finally got to us, they're like, "Why didn't you just blow this thing in place?" Um, and, and the commander was having a bit of a win saying, you know, like I put my guys through so much risk. We hit half a dozen IEDs ourselves to get here. Um, you know, all to recover a vehicle that's pretty much stuffed anyway. You know, you should have just blew it in place. And I was thinking, well, you know, and he's right. You know, mm. if, if the vehicle's destroyed um, or three quarters destroyed, there's not much point of, of saving it anyway. You know, you're just putting more lives at risk for the sake of, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mm. So, um, you know, you weigh up what is that recovery worth it um, as opposed to lives and, and external factors. So, yeah. Um, the next one we had, um, we had a hull breach on the front left-hand side, I think, remember. Um, the rest of the vehicle wasn't too bad. The, the axles were done um, and there was a small hull breach left side. But on that one, I got everybody in the call sign to put all of their rubbish in the back of the car. Um, any extra fuel was thrown in the back of that and dropped a thermite grenade um, over engine and in the back of it and then called in an airstrike on that one. And that one had been burning for about 20 minutes before we called the airstrike in. Um, that, you know, the real cool thing about that, everybody was in their cars. We were definitely way too close to, to the airport. We're probably only about 300 metres away. Um, so we should have been a lot further away, but we're like, yeah, yeah, it's all good. And then I was outside of my car. My car was parked on the 45, um, um, on the angle to it. So I was on 
the crew commander's side outside the car, um, peering through my side left window and the windscreen, you know, so I had that double thickness yeah. between me. And then when it hit, because, you know, an airstrike so close, it was huge and it totally disintegrated this car <laughs> and this lump of metal come flying past my head. It was probably like only, you know, a metre, two metres above my head. And it was just with so much, you know, so much force that it came through. If it had hit hit the car, it just would have gone straight through the window. You know, like, I was thinking, oh, God, we've got to know way with the lucky on that one. <laughs> it was a massive bit of metal just ripped through at warp speed of, yep, okay. <laughs> Won't do that again. <laughs> yeah, right. You didn't have to. Fire made it brittle. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. You didn't have to fill out uh, any L&Ds for any of these uh, vehicles, did you? <laughs> that would have been a pain in the ass. During your time as a two commando uh, operator, you went to fly on a lot of helicopters, a lot of operations, a lot of jobs on the helicopters. To on the twenty first of June two thousand ten, this is where it changes your life. And uh, at this stage, we do lose uh, three Australian uh, commandos as well, as well as a US soldier and a, a few wounded in action as well. So, mate, run us through this day of obviously what you can remember. So. There's, there's two, I suppose, variants in this story. There's the one that, um, you know, like I couldn't remember anything initially. So, um, and then there's the others as my memory come back. So mm. I suppose the, the first bit is um, I was sitting in my room, um, you know, we had done orders and that sort of stuff. They were written, they had to be given. Um, I went in with, so I was going in with the, um, the sniper team up onto the feature with the, um, with the bear element, with the Zulu. Um, so we were, um, so Gary Robinson and myself were doing the seating plan for the aircraft and we had to, to kick a couple of people off the aircraft because of, you know, lift capability. Um, so a couple of people got removed and we'd done that. And then I went back over to my room and I was watching Zombieland before orders and um, one of the guys came in and he wanted to, um, you know, talk about the mission. If I, you know, um, you know, act as a number two for him, you know, doing sniper stuff. Um, on the hill, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, go away, Dimmy. Um, I'm watching a movie. Dimmy. And, it, you know, he's got a drag in his feet. Because, you know, like Bravo's, we have our own room and there's porn on the walls and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And Dimmy's like, oh, you sergeants live it really well in here. Um, you know, they're all shared, one patrol in a room. And I'm like, Dimmy, just get out, you know. And as he closed the door, um, I pressed play. And then um, so in my head, I woke up in Germany. So I was in a bed uh, with my right leg elevated, my, you know, there was the hole in my leg and, and you know, my, all of my injuries. And wow. um, it was literally like I'd linked. So it was, you know, it was instantaneous. Mm. Um, it was the weirdest thing in the world, you know, just to be able to like go, what just happened? You know, um, and then I was completely confused and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, you know, events sort of unfolded after that. Um, but he, and, and then the other one is, um, so I, I, I don't remember, um, in either, you know, like I don't remember going to orders. Um, I don't remember, you know, like going to bed and then waking up and then getting on the aircraft and all that sort of stuff. I don't remember the flight. Um, but what I do remember is, so at three-minute mark where um, we were given three minutes, I remember being in the um, left side of the aircraft um, in the middle of the aperture. Um, I... Um, I flicked my NBGs down, so like I did the turn on, flicked them down, and as I looked down, the ground was directly beneath my feet. So um, we hit the ground. I had enough time to, to say fuck, basically, and then we hit the ground, 
Um, and then I remember, and the, the, this part of it's, you know, like really, really vague sort of stuff. I remember laying there, I was completely covered in dust and I was really confused on what, you know, like what all the dust and shit was. And then the choppers landed off to my right. Um, so, you know, a couple of the guys overflew. So we were the lead aircraft, the mm. four aircrafts. Um, and the guys overflew us, went around, landed behind us, then started. So all the medics rushed out to us. Um, all the other guys started reconfiguring the aircrafts, you know, dragging the seats out, that type of stuff, um, to make it so it was a, you know, a, a medical or suitable for medical. Um, I remember calling out. And then I remember the medic coming over to me um, and then, um, you know, the boys were starting to work on me. I remember looking at my leg and where the blood was coming out of my leg was like, you know, really profuse because the artery was cut. It was just pouring and pouring out. And um, I can remember sort of the, the medic um, looking at it going, oh, shit, because he was actually working on the dude next to me. Mm. Um, and then, um, yeah, tourniquets, blah, blah, blah. The boys, one of the boys, Dave, tried to pick me up because um, I was wearing the stretcher, so I had the talon on, um, and it was completely destroyed. Um, so there was no stretcher to ferry me to, to the aircraft or any of the others. So um, anyway, the boys picked me up, and I remember screaming and then passing out. But because you know, broken back, broken pelvis, broken legs, wow. broken arm, blah blah blah. So, um, but he heaps and heaps of pain, um, and then from there, yeah, that'll do for now. Yeah, fucking. Hell. Pete, can I ask what was the time like? The how many hours from when you played the video? Uh, sorry, when you played the movie to you woke up in Germany? Like twelve hours, th- thirty hours or so. Yeah, it would have been probably a, maybe. I, I'm guessing here, mate, because yeah. you know, like they moved me to Kandahar. Went from Kandahar, um, you know, so you you sort of like stabilised in Kandahar and oh, prepped gotcha. for travel, right? And then, and then put into an aircraft. Um, yeah, and then flown to Germany and then operated on in Germany and then – So you know, you're looking at like two, two days maybe? Yeah, maybe, mate. Far out. So um, on that flight or on that helo, uh, we lost uh, Scott Palmer, Timothy uh, Applin and uh, Benjamin Chuck, correct? And uh, yes. a, US, uh, a US personnel as well. Seven wounded Aussies as well. Yeah, far out and fuck – just can't. I was just saying to Matt before uh, we started this podcast that I was on HMOS Manura and we're watching the telly and uh, come in the morning, morning news, and we're all just like, holy fuck, you know. And this was the same uh, year that a few other stuff happened as well uh, with Dan Kieran getting his uh, Victoria Cross. So and it was just yep. like, and I remember like for that year on, on board that ship, everyone's just like, holy fuck, you know, Afghanistan is just going mm. like chaos. It's just mental. Um, yeah, so Ben got his VC that trip too. Sorry, Ben got his VC that trip too. RS. Oh, did yeah, he? oh, yes. okay, yeah, shout yeah. Out, shout, shout, shout out the Ben there, hanging out with uh, the, the boys. Yeah, yeah, Fairfax. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, how long do you spend in Germany? Um, I think it's a couple of weeks. Right? I think it's a couple of weeks. Yeah, right, and, and then they uh, transport you back to Australia to a. Yep. So we um, we got put on C seventeen out of Germany, uh, taken to get to Diego Garcia, and then mm-hmm. Diego Garcia to Sydney, and we went into um, into Westmead Private Hospital into the ICU there. Yeah, right. Shit, they put you in Westmead. That's uh, mm-hmm. one of the best hospitals in the world. Mate, they were they were outstanding. They did a great job. The the ICU there was really good. So um, there was three of us, and myself were were in the main floor 
um, of the ICU. Um, even though I, all it's an open bed space, but I had a, a room at the end because I had a brain injury, so I was a bit unique to people. Um, and then at the end of the, the room was um, there was another room that they was like a storage room that they converted to put the rest of our people in, so they were up there and yep. they could be kept away from the media. Yeah. So yeah, the other four were in there. Yeah. Right. Um, how how long was your recovery? Um, a long time. Um, so for the first year, it was, you know, very, um, so, you know, lots of surgeries, mm. all that sort of stuff. So, um, so my, mine was a bit weird because, I, so I had a zero count on the nerve conduction study and I didn't have so leg function. So I had no bowel, no urine and no leg function, oh, but I could feel my legs. Um, so, you know, with those three, you generally, you know, fall in the category of, of you're going to be a, you know, para. Um, and then a doctor called Charles New um, thought he knew why that I, I had um, no function. Um, so I, they went back in and did another surgery on me. Um, so all of the hardware that the Americans put into my back was on the right side. They then took all of that out and then put it around on the left side. So they changed the way it sat. Um, and then over a period of time, um, I started to, you know, like I, I got some movement back into legs and things like that. And then eventually I was able to, you know, support my body weight and, and blah, blah, blah. So it was a long going process with that. And then because of the amount of injuries that I had, they had to be broken up. Um, so I still had some sort of quality of life, but they wanted to re-break my right arm um, because the bone had been broken and twisted. And then they said I wouldn't have hand function because, and I didn't have hand function in those days because of the way the bone was sitting. So they wanted to redo it. And I said, well, sort of said, well, no, we need to break it up. I'm just starting to, you know, learn to use my legs sort of stuff. Yeah. We need to give my arm a break, you know, like yeah. I, I need to have something to support myself. So there was plenty of that sort of stuff going on where you, you need to have some space between stuff um, to enable one thing to heal to then try to trigger another. So there was a lot of that. And plus, because I've had lots of dramas with pain, I get shitloads of pain. Um and then trying to manage the pain against the functionality, I think so. Yeah, yeah right. All right. So up until 2017, your discharge, you, um, you returned to work, work obviously, in the next couple of years down the track. And, okay, wow. Um, just what, what, what just, do you go back to? Do yeah. you go back to like training or do you just become a uh, instructor? I was, mate, that was more like um, some work would just being kind to me, man. They were, yeah. you know, um, um, you know, I suppose, you know, back in the old days, they would have just kicked me out the door and said, mm, thanks for coming. Yeah, see you later. yeah. But um, the unit, uh, so both SASR and 2 Commando were extremely kind to me. 2 Commando looked after me you know, as much as they could. Um, I, I I had a girlfriend at the time and I'd split up with her. And it, um, so I was still in Sydney and I had, um, like, I needed help. I couldn't do much, you know, like I couldn't dress myself or, or do any of that sort of stuff. So I was, you know, very much useless. Um and um, so SASR supposed to be back in because I had family in WA and all that sort of stuff. And then they um, gave me a job um, in a seven shop. So I was, you know, just doing some stuff in there and training and so on. Um, but I was really wasn't that effective because I was really struggling by the time I, you know, sort of like drove to work. I had a modified car and that. And then, you know, do some work and then turn around and go home. It left me extremely fatigued. Mm. Um so, and, and they were great, you know, they sort of let me 
they gave me a, a huge left and right of arc and, and really sort of said, you know, Pete, operate in your own space um, and do what you need to do. Um, you know, welfare boards were conducted regularly. So um, I was just basically I was just being looked after. Mm. And then um, I had to think about, you know, what, what's the long, long term? I, um, again, defence was really good. Oh, there we go. Oh, we're good. Ooh. We're good. That just said low battery. Um, stay with me. Um, no, I will on. endeavour to plug this in. So we're going to do a little walk while we go down and get the charger. <laughs> no, you're on, mate. Um, so that means we're going to go past family. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, they were really good. And then um, I got off at J43, which was a, just an awesome thing to, to go back to school. There's my family. There's my kids. Hey, kids. Hello. <laughs> it's, it's, fu- it's funny because your, uh, ban- your bandwidth with was uh, going low before, and it's obviously because the kids are on the internet as well. On the Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, the boy, he does um, He does love the internet. Yeah, Minecraft and all those little games. My Roblox. kids play the same things. Yeah, Roblox. They get on the old. Yeah. Uh, He's on my work computer, though. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> He's watching old Warriors. <laughs> the worries I don't mind. It's the other thing that soldiers traffic. He's <laughs> out the there, drive. He's out there yeah. watching bloody Silent so- so- Dispatch Co videos. Constantly trying to hide my phone. Sorry, guys, we're almost. No, you're up, mate. You're up. You know, I put a, a battery pack on this. Um, yeah, I put a battery pack on this before, and um, we burnt through a battery pack. Oh shit! Yeah. So yes. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, so you I, I did the J four three stuff. Yep. Um, and then so my CEO was a fantastic man. He's now the brigade commander of Thirteen Brigade. Wow. Said, "Have you ever thought about being a counsellor?" And I thought, "Why would I want to listen to people whinging?" And um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you would have heard a lot of that as being a sergeant too. A lot of diggers whinging. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I was pretty lucky. I, I never really had guys um, that big whinge. And there was the odd individual who used to whinge a lot, but as a whole, the guys just get on with the job. Then. Yeah. So anyway, um, in the end, I thought, no, nah, it's all right, because the boss sold it quite well to me, because um, I was always that sort of the guy that goes, you know, come up and ask questions to anyway. So um, they sent a rep from the unit to go and talk to the school and said, you know, because I had a brain injury, um, the frontal lobe bleed, um, I had a tendency to tell people what I thought of them um, and because, you know, sometimes that doesn't work so well. Um, <laughs> you know, if you say to a chick when you're at, at school, you know, I probably wouldn't wear that dress. You're a bit fat for it. You know, it doesn't go down well. Or, you know, <laughs> on the other side of it, you know, somebody you say to somebody, oh, you know, you look absolutely beautiful today, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, in today's environment, they think you're hitting on them. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. you just can't win on that. So, um they sort of explained to him that, you know, with the brain injury, I, I might say things that I probably shouldn't that are inappropriate, mm. um, which was cool because I did say a lot of things to people I, I thought <laughs> we should go down that was inappropriate, um, especially when people say, you know, there's always that one idiot in class that keeps asking the dumb question, that one. <laughs> so, um, no, it was, it was all good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed the counselling sort of stuff, and I went on to do um, six diplomas um, with it, so... And defence sort of, you know, they, they paid for all of that. Um, plus also looked after me. I did Cert 3 and Cert 4 in fitness. Yeah. So um, I sort of set up a program which was a, um, a, so a counselling 
thing, named after my son, Talon, so Talon Counselling. Um, and um, it, it's shaped around, you know, doing that really holistic stuff, you know, that, you know, as, as soldiers, you know, what do we do each day? You know, we go into work 7.30, we, um, you know, we do some PT, you know, we go and have brekkie, we come back from that, we start our work day, mm. which is generally, you know, physical in, in many elements of it, um, you know, and then, you know, knock off sort of four and go home. Bloody, um, when guys discharge or, or um, and regardless of what type of discharge it is, it's just, you know, leaving um, because they want or, or a medical, um, you know, during that transition period, they, they sit there a lot on their lounge and they, you know, they watch the, the morning TV, you know, when they finally drag themselves out of bed and then they get on social media for a bit and, you know, then they you know, might play hero for a while and tell everybody they're a wanker for a bit, and, you know, and then they might start their day about 11 or 12 where they really do nothing effectively and so on. And it was, I was starting to see this trend with a lot of people um, through the different um sort of organisations that I was helping out. That, that That's what guys were doing. Mm. You know, like I, I, I didn't make that scenario up. That's actually what they told me they did. And um, I was thinking, well, this, this isn't a great way to be. You know, inherently we are physical type of people. So um, getting guys back into, you know, getting up out of bed, going doing some PT, you know, and then um, save me doing it with them. Um, you know, that way I'm teaching them how to do things properly, making sure that they're doing it safely, um, and you, you're counselling them at the same time. You know, you, everything is, a, is, a, is that um, opportunity to put um, the thought into someone's head to, to, uh, to progress. Yeah. So that was always my plan with it. Yeah, right. That, um, it gave me the opportunity to do that. And across the, the, the defence adaptive sports stuff um, has been really, really good because, you know, like we've got all of these guys and girls coming in from Army, Navy, Air Force with different experiences in the background and trying to get them to find that little thing that makes them happy enough to get up in the morning and do that PT. Yeah. You know, once you PT and your physical health helps your mental health and then it makes the rest of it sort of fall into place. So that was always the cunning plan. Um, and, it, and it seemed to work. And, and I have to thank Defence for sort of um, supporting me through that. Um, and once I'd finished that, you know, it became that natural thing for me to move on. Yeah. You know, I think in our world we have too many people that are dinosaurs that they sit in these defence positions for hundreds of years because, you know, they've got nowhere else to go um, and they can be really obstructive to the, you know, the the evolution of, of, of our jobs. Yep. Um, and I didn't want to be that dude, you know, that, that legacy. Oh, you know, keep Pete because he was in a helicopter crash, you know, poor old Pete. You know, um, I figured that, that that was my time um, to, to make my mark in my own space and not hide behind the walls of defence. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's, uh, it's inspiring actually and uh, very uh, motivational. Mate, you also com- uh, competed in three Invictus Games as well. Orlando, Florida, Toronto, Canada, and uh, hometown Sydney, or well, our hometown Sydney. Mm-hmm. It's uh, archery, uh, seated volleyball, wheelchair rugby. Which I'm did you say wheelchair archery? No, no, it's just archery. Oh, they said wheelchair archery. No, I was like, no. what the <laughs> fuck? It's like they skirmish in a wheelchair, just going around <laughs> shoot each other. Um, you can do that. It's got to move real quick. Incumbent <laughs> cycling got a gold medal. Got a gold medal. It's behind you, is it? Um. That one is the cycling, yes. It's the one behind me. Yeah, that's wow. And so, uh, you got to meet um, you got to meet Harry. Yeah, Prince Harry. Right. How, was, how was he back in the day before he met he is, the, the dragon? It's funny. Everybody <laughs> says that he was he was amazing. Dude. He was really like really engaging, good guy. But he um, but he 
just just like us in conversation, you know, just a really easy going, yeah. good guy, mad cunt. But he, um, <laughs> yeah, he's changed. Yeah, he's cha- yeah. That's what that's what women do. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't said that. Yeah, I was gonna say say one married person who hasn't though. You're yeah. Yeah, he went from uh, killing Taliban to um, under the thumb. <laughs> she she, she isn't, isn't even hot either. I don't I don't rate her. She's, oh, she's not she's, even hot. She's rich. Is she though? <laughs> I don't know. She's an actor. Oh, she's shit out of that. Anyway, yeah. So how, how was the Invictus Games set? It's just a great environment, isn't it? It's gold. Um, it's a great opportunity that's given to people. Um, and and I've really made it a, a big thing of trying to get more people involved. So when I when I got involved in it. Like um, my injuries were still fairly severe, and I um, so within the SF environment, three of us got um, to go over to America to um, to Florida to their special operations headquarters, and they were doing their pre-selection for Warrior Games, and you know we got an introduction, and um, it was funny because the three of us were all snipers and that, and we we shot in the shooting competition and then killed it, and they're like, "Gee, you Aussies can shoot." None of us told them the truth like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sucks. And then bloody um, one of the guys, uh, one of the, the American cycle uh, coach, said to me, um, "Can you ride a, a stand up bike?" And I said, "Nah, bloody um, too much pain with my legs and my back and all that sort of stuff." And he goes, "Man, I'd love to get you on a recumber bike." And I didn't even know what it was. And um, so he takes me over and shows me this bike. And he goes, "You know, you can even buy this one in Australia. This is an Australian bike uh, called a Greenspeed." So we jumped on it, went for a ride, loved it. And, it, you know, it took me back to, you know, when you're out training by yourself, just pounding the pavement, you know, losing your headspace and just enjoying it. Yeah. Um, so what was supposed to be a five-minute ride was like 40 minutes riding around the base going, yeah, man, kill him, kill him. <laughs> and then so I come back to Australia and buddy, someone said to me, oh, you're going on the next Invictus Games. And I was like, well, what's that? I didn't even know what it was. And then they said, oh, man, you've been picked. Um, you're going to go on the next Games. So, um, which was funny enough, only a few weeks later, and funny enough, Florida in America. Yeah. So I, I could have stayed there instead of coming home. <laughs> but he, um, but turned around, went back. Didn't even know the sports. Like you know, back in those days, we we didn't do any training or anything like that sort of stuff. We you know we just turned up at the departure point, which was Brisbane. You know, got on the planes and we flew out. My brother come with me and and my oldest daughter. Um, so we got over there. The Americans lent me a bike and it was like, you know, they made sure that we couldn't win or anything like that because it was like the oldest, <laughs> crappiest, you know, bike known to man. But the, the thing was that it was like, it was, it was that first taste, you know, I, man, I come dead last, you know, I'd ridden a, a bike once. I was, you know, a little fat dude because I'd done no training <laughs> and all that sort of stuff, you know, and um, they, they, they gave us tights too, you know, like lycra like tights. Oh, no. And, you know, like no man should ever wear that shit anyway. And, when you're and I'm just like, yeah, no. And I'm, when I was on the race, it was so funny, man. I, I didn't even know how to get the water bottle out of the water bottle carrier. Oh. Um, and it was in front of you because you I mean you'd have to stop pedaling. And I'm like, I'm in a race, I have to keep pedaling. So I couldn't reach the water bottle. And it was this, you know, horrible hot day in Florida. And I'm like doing that, you know, I'd kill for water. And then a dude came past me and he'd dropped his water bottle and it was on a lanyard and it was behind him. It was dragging behind him like a metre behind him on the lanyard and it was slowly eating the water bottle and water spilling out of it. And I'm like, this is just sent here to tease me now. <laughs> like, the water, the water. So um, it was a funny day and, and like so that, 
that was how I got in. I got the taste of the sport and I said, oh, I want to do this again. And then um, I did the archery stuff there and that was really cool. You know, like it wasn't competitive because I, again, only just started doing it, you know, um, just before it. Um, but I, I sort of, I met one of the German guys and he was awesome. Him and I just got along really, really well and he was giving me heaps of tips and there was a French guy as well um, who I'm still friends with today. Um you know, he has given me heaps of tips and that. And I really liked the space that I got into. Mm. You know, um, we're in Australia, because I'd had so many injuries, you know, and when you're in a room with other wounded dudes and you're feeling like you're the most wounded in the room, you know, um, you don't really have anybody to, to talk to, even though, you know, like I said, you know, say, you know, you'll be in there with an amputee or something like that. But I had like everything. I broke everything. And, and you know, the way that it impacted, I, don't, I didn't have anybody to talk to that, that that had that, you know, had gone through that. So anyway, when I got to Invictus, you know, I was no longer the, the most, you know, broken in the room. There was so many people for me to talk to about, you know, their injury journey on, on the amount of injuries they'd had, you know, guys from IEDs and, and again, other helicopter crash guys. So it opened a new space to me. Yeah. And then I sort of realised that that if I wanted to, to be, one, I wanted to, to do sport because I wanted to be healthy and that's the type of person I was. But the other was if I wanted to stay in the space with these sort of guys meant that I had to, to really work at it um, and stay in that Invictus environment, you know, yeah. um, you know, to get out, I, you know, I came back to Australia, I bought a trike, I, um, I, you know, I trained every day, I, you know, I said to everybody, I'm going to go back on the next games and I'm going to win, you know, a gold and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and that's how it sort of panned out for me. I got a bike, I went back, I was lucky enough to be asked to be a co-captain with Emma Kajolka Um and but he, you know, everything went really well. You know, I got to go back. I got to see those people again. I got to um, to tell my story. I got to I got to win. Um, I gave so the night I won the the first one, the the, um, the time trial. I rang Brendan Nelson from the Walmore, who was the director at the time, and um, I said, "Mate, do you want my medal?" And he's like, "What?" And I said, "Mate, I want to give it to the Walmore." And he's like, "Oh shit, yeah, bloody oath, if you want to give it up." And the whole thing was I always said that if I wanted a medal, I wasn't going to keep the thing anyway. Yeah. Um, I wanted to give it up and I wanted to show that, you know, you can come from being, you know, fully broken um, with with really limited expectations um, to, you know, being able to really change, you know, not just come back to win the medal, but to actually change the way that you you see your life and your outcomes. So um, the first one, I, I, I so I gave it to Brendan on return to Australia and the one behind me is actually the second one that I won. So I won the next day um, in the in the crit. So I kept the one from the crit and framed it up and the, the shirt and just got everybody in the team to sort of sign it. Yeah, awesome. But um, that was sort of the journey with that. So Yeah, that's uh, that's super cool. cool. It's, we, ha- we actually spoke to Curtis McGrath a, f- a few episodes back and, you know, it's same same story, mate. Like he just – yeah, you know, he was actually you know bleeding out, and that was what he said. I'm going to win a gold medal, and in the he actually bloody, said that when he's getting carried to the to the healer. to the healer, and and they're like, yeah, right, I can't know. Yeah, right, mate. <laughs> but yeah, so the, yeah, he did. crazy stories just to hear guys like yourself. Just it's it's literally that never fucking quit story. Just keep going. Life life goes on. I was lucky enough to to share a room with Curtis. Um, so he was a previous oh. captain. He was a captain for the London Games. Um, but you know, just such a bloody nice. Lovely bloke. He's a lovely bloke to be around. He never has a bad word to say about anybody or anything. You know, he he just gets on with the job. He's always got a smile on his face. You know, he's just a fantastic guy. Um, 
and he, and he does so well. It's an absolute pleasure to see him in the media doing so well. All the time. Yeah, yeah, great role model. Not to mention Invictus, but also the actual uh, Paralympics. I think he yep. spent maybe a year doing the canoeing, and he yeah, smoked these dudes. Yeah. Been doing it for years, back to back gold medal. Yeah, yep. and he, like, he's, a, he's a fucking back. machine. Yeah, he's an athlete. Bloody yeah. Mate, uh, just quick one about your consulting company. Are you still running that? That's still going? It's in a different format now because, um, um, you know, with the RSL ambassador stuff and everything like that, you know, my days are just sitting there counselling the dude. They're, they're pretty much gone. Um, but I um, – so I'm more sneaky with it. You know, if I'm doing stuff for RSL, um, you know, and I see that guys have got problems or um, then I'll sort of drag them in and then I'll shape the way that that occurs, you know, like trying to get them into the PT side of things or, um, you know, uh, talk to them about um, what they see themselves doing and how to best, you know, follow that path. Yeah. Um, so I do it in that sense. but And then across, you know, the, the various programs that I'm involved in, um, again, I insert myself into to do that and, and um, sort of guide that progression. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, with the RSL, you are an ambassador for the RSL, which is uh, really cool because it's good to you, – you, you've almost been on two sides of the army. You've been on that, you know, the uh, early 90s through to 2000 where it was quite quiet and then you're a modern warfighter as well. So, you you know, it's great to see the RSL transitioning into that, you know, the modern space and because as, as we know with the RSL, it's starting to get a, I wouldn't say stale, but it was just getting a bit, all the guys from Vietnam, they're just getting old, dated and old and stuck in those ways, as you know. And it's great to see modern warfighters now taking the lead and uh, helping the younger generation yeah. like us transition. There you go on that. I'll say something. This was said to me when I was a boy, right? And um, I, I always found it really interesting. So, so World War One guys, you know, go to this massive war, you know, you know, thousands, millions of people die, you know, big battles, you know, lose a battalion in, a, in an afternoon type mm. of stuff. They come back, you know, the RSL's established, um, you know, so guys have got somewhere to go and families have got somewhere to go, you know, so it was a, you know, a creature of necessity. You know, World War II comes up and the old World War One guys say, oh, you didn't do it as hard as me. You know, bloody, you know, and most in most cases, you know, it's these guys, it's their dads too, you know. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're, they're related. But the old guys are going, you know, you didn't do it as hard as me. World War One was harder. You know, wait your turn, you'll have your place in the RSL or you'll have your place in anything in the due course of time, mm. right? So the World War Two guys, they say to the Korea and the Vietnam veterans, you know, you know, you guys, you know, you'll, you'll have your place. Your war wasn't much, you know, like we lost more guys in an afternoon than you lost in 10 years of war, you know. So, again, you know, the, the, the Vietnam veterans, they feel hard done by, just like the World War Two yeah. veterans felt hard by done, Korean veterans felt hard by. You know, so there's that, that part, you know, and, and, again, they said to them, you know, you'll have your day. You know, and the Vietnam veterans, they all winced and they all jumped up and down and, and said, you know, the, these guys, they treat us with contempt, blah, 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 blah. But that, like, what I'm trying to say is that's just people. That's yeah. what people yeah, do. Yeah, of course, yeah. You know, and then you've got us. We're coming further down the list. You know, you've, so you've got all your Timor veterans and Eric and, you know, the Vietnam says, well, it's not really a war, was it? You know, like how many people died? You know, so, oh, shit, I hear history repeating itself again. Mm. You know, then all of a sudden, buddy, you know, Iraq comes up. Afghanistan comes up. Yep, Afghanistan is another big one and certainly a big one for us, for our generation. You know, so many of us went over there. We, you know, we had guys killed and we killed a lot of people, you know. But in the big scheme of things, World War II guys, Vietnam, they're sort of saying to us, well, you didn't really have that many guys killed, did you? Yeah. You know, so 
my point is, as, as it goes down, that's just the way that things are. That's yeah. the way that people are in any thing, you know, any job at all, you have to wait your turn, you have to earn your place. Now, um, we, we've been really lucky because the Vietnam veterans guys in so many cases are happy to hand over because mm. they realise the future of the RSL is, is in us. But what we need to learn, and, and I think that we don't do this well as, as younger guys, is that, you know, we want everything at once. Mm. You know, I want to walk in the door of the RSL and I want to run the bloody thing. And some old fellow, if he tells me no, he's just being obstructive. Instead of us going, you know what, yep, if I've got a good idea, it'll work in time. You know, like yeah. I'll be able to put that across, you know. Yeah. We, we just need to, to learn to be a little bit more patient and we need to remember that, like, you know, um, the RSL and, and Legacy and all the other organisations that have been around a while, they've been around for a while because there's a necessity for them. Um, and they can do great things if we do great things as well. Yeah. You know, we should, you know we've got this thing, what can the RSL do for us? But it should be also, um, you know, what can we do for each other, not mm. just the RSL? And when we come together and, you know, we go into an RSL, um, you know, that's the sort of things, you know, we, we need to be doing, looking out for each other, organising stuff where we get together, doing stuff that are for like-minded groups, you know. If we're into shooting, we'll go shooting together. You know, if they're into bloody football, they go to football together. But, you know, it should be that meeting place where we get yeah, together. Course. And that's why I sort of got involved in because I, I see that nothing's changed. It's always been the same shit. It's just that now, you know, we, we've got social media and we can, you know, and phones and we're always talking and we're always whinging about it. The same shit was happening in World War II, World War II, oh, yeah. you know, Korea, yeah, Vietnam, same shit. It's just being expressed differently. So I don't know if it's so much that the RSL is out of touch. You know, it's it's maybe as it's, it's different as generations, a, you know, generation collectively change. us and the RSL yeah. just aren't in sync. Yeah, it's it's generational. It's generational. It's generation change. Like far out, we you know mm. we can search anything on our phones now like whereas they didn't have well you go well at the moment with ukraine and russia you go and sort of like you can find like actual footage from the war from like two hours you ago you can live stream it yeah now exactly if you That's what you like, soldiers out there live streaming this stuff now <laughs> doing, doing tiktoks right you're doing tiktoks and <laughs> doing everything crazy crazy times mate. but it's uh, absolutely awesome that you're on board with the rsl and um doing what you're doing there are there are younger veterans uh stepping up adrian sutter is involved with kuji rsl so mm. is a uh petty officer female that i used to serve with she's also yeah. involved and they're uh, in their uh late 30s yeah so that just goes to show there's like a new blood cut coming through the ranks because there is a stage when matt and i will be old um you know like six, 60 70 years old and like it'll be our time to step up and Sort of hope there is no more wars, but at the same time, I sort of hope there is. But um, you know, when we go, when like the the Afghan vets go, on the then the Iraq vets go, what happens then? Like our kids step up to the plate. Mm. So anyway, there will all there will always be war. Yeah, that's yeah. You know, for the last hundred years, that's all we've known. That's and it. for the hundred years before that, that's all there was. It's just in different places in different ways. There will always be war, and I suppose you know. Um, there, Regardless of the war, the type of conflict, the situation is still the same. Mm. Some people suffer, some people get wounded. You know, it, it's you know it's all there. The impacts on families. It's just a slight variant of it. Yeah. Um, and I think the main thing that we can keep doing, and this is why I got into the space. You know, um, we the only thing that matters here is we look after each other. Exactly. Nobody else is gonna. You know, like if we don't look after each other, nobody else is gonna. Everybody will just go, oh, yeah, yeah, push them over into the corner. So, you know, if we're going to make a difference, we've got to make it to each other and we can't keep expecting people to do it for us. You know, my big call is, you know, start putting your hand up, not put it in the out. 
you know, we, we're starting to go down a path where we want everything instead of, you know, being able to help each other. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, with the RSL as being the biggest organisation, 150,000 members and all around the country, the infrastructure's there. You know, I don't get into this whole, you know, like, you know, cancel culture that, that <laughs> just goes on so much. You know, we've got something. If we don't like it, make it better. Yeah, exactly. You know, the opportunities there. Yeah. You know, we, we get our friends around, you know, and we all go down to the one thing and we, we all take membership and then we make change by, you know, by the collective numbers or whatever, you know. We, that's the way to make it better, not just sit around on a fucking internet and complain about it. Yeah. You know? No, exactly right. And, you know, again, that's the reason why we started this podcast, you know, was to reconnect veterans and share stories like this to other veterans and regardless of, you know, Shane being Navy, which we don't like, but I'll be friends with him. You know what I mean? Like it's just sharing it stories. It's hard, bro. <laughs> it's, hard. it's hard. We had air conditioning, four hot meals a day, <laughs> midnighters, clean, clean foreskins. <laughs> clean for- <laughs> yeah, so- look in the mirror and go. Really, I should give my money back. <laughs> not, not at all, <laughs> mate. We've been talking for an hour and forty minutes, mate. It's been absolutely, Jeez. yeah, absolutely wow. incredible. You know, I still remember you. You know, when I first met you, two thousand, two thousand five ish, and obviously around around the traps of, you know, when you were at four hours at three. So you know, the area mess or wherever, you know, around the ring road. Punching on with two commando blokes. Warhouse. <laughs> it happened. <up> there. <laughs> Top of the table trophy. <laughs> at Liverpool, yeah. At Liverpool, yeah. Been out there a few times. <laughs> so, mate, for our guests, we've just got two final questions. Um, you know, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on, complete any goal they set their mind to and, um, you know, just, just kill it. Take it to the next level. Okay. That one's an easy one because – I've, I've always been a, a firm believer in, you know, like everything that I've had in my life has been luck, you know, um, but he, we only we only have one life and, and if something doesn't go your way, you know, learn from it, move on from it. You know, don't don't hold on to shit. You know, who wants to sit around the walls of the, you know, of a hospital bed or a hospital room or, or your house? You know, but he, take the lesson that, that's there for you and enjoy it, you know. Be answerable for who you are. Be confident. Be happy. Just do it. But he, yeah, that's the big one. You know, one life, enjoy it. Yeah. Simple. It it is simple. It is simple. Just resonates because, again, going back to when I first met you, mate, you were just one of those people that was always smiling, always happy. Just you weren't, you know, a fuckwit when it came to training people. Like you taught people how to do things and didn't treat them like a fuckwit. And that's that's what I remember from PTS anyway. Thanks, bro. Yeah, quick one with that. My, so my wife um, did a paracourse around the same time you did. So I married Tammy Ryan, who's now Tammy Rudland. We have um, two children. And um, Tam was showing um, the kids the video from the paracourse. Yeah. And they were going around to, you know, like, you know, this is Sergeant Jones and, you know, they'd wave and, you know, this is Sergeant Hallam and they'd wave. <laughs> you know, great friend of mine, Pete Hallam. And then they got to me and I didn't even get a rank. I got, this is Pete. And I grabbed the camera <laughs> and I licked the camera. And, went, <laughs> and then my boy was saying how funny it was that, you know, like everybody was, you know, like serious. And then, yeah. you know, dad <laughs> this just is Pete. grabbed the camera and licked it. <laughs> the, old, the old window licker. <laughs> um, Pete, I've got actually two questions, but we'll start with the one we usually ask. Uh, what's in store for the future? Well, I want to keep doing the same thing that I'm doing. I'll stay within the adaptive sports space as long as they'll have me. Um, you know, I really, really enjoy that. Um, I, I want to stay within the RSL space. Um, um, 
and again, hopefully, you know, they continue or they're keen to continue that, and I think they are by the, certainly all the feedback I'm getting. Um, I want to stay in the defence space, so I want to help those who want to be helped. Um, I understand that, you know, some of our people, they'll always see the negative side of life, yeah. but those who, who want to see the positive side, I certainly want to contribute to that um, and make sure that our people are looked after um, in any way that I can. Very, very nicely put. Uh Second half of this question, uh, what's better, the East or the West, SAS versus Commando? There is no um, better or, or worse in that. They're, they're two totally different jobs. Um, yeah, both of them strategic assets that, that do a job. I, I love the, the role of direct action tasks, you know, being commandos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love the hitting power that comes with um, with that and I love the um, the larger formation um, hitting power that commandos bring. Um, on the other side of it, I love the the long range reconnaissance stuff that SAS have. I love mm. the um, you know when you've got a good functioning patrol, that interaction that comes with that, um, and that that strength of doing something that is so in many cases so arduous. You know, I mean, I did many things that were um, a lot harder than my my selection course itself. I always thought my selection course would be the hardest thing I did, but yeah. you know, within a patrol, you do things that are harder. Um, so, you know, there's great growth, personal growth in, in the things that you do in the West. Um, in both locations, there are some absolutely outstanding individuals. Um, you know, in both locations, there's some guys who aren't so outstanding. But, mm. um, you know, the both units have their merit, and I, I'm certainly really proud to have been um, involved in both. Yeah, mate, yeah. there'd be a handful of guys that have done the both. I was just about to ask yeah, that. I absolutely think there would be many, would there? Um, yeah, there's... I don't know, there's probably, you know, up around the 100 or so in total, really. Which is not many. When you think about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I call that big numbers when you think, you know, our overall numbers aren't that high in the first place. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just before we go, uh, we had a guest on episode 45, uh, Corey Jones. Do you remember him? He said he was part of – I was just giving him a text just before uh, he was your – he was in the selection course. So you were his – what else? You are his instructor to the selection. Um. He's about six four and about four hundred kilos worth of just muscle. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So one of the bad bad things that I'll put out there is a bit of a disclaimer. So when I had the um so oh, weird gotcha. crash having a yeah. frontal lobe bleed, um, you know, so, like there's a lot of people that were eradicated from my my memory. You know, yeah. oh sorry, yep. Um, so guys that I do know really well and remember, sometimes you know, just with the name, I I I, I can't, you know, sort of bring that up. Um, on other things, you know, I'm absolutely perfect and meticulous with, but just for names, I sort of seem to struggle with a little bit these days, okay. um, or not these days, but ever since the crash. So, you know, yeah. since what, bloody 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, so no, um, cool. I, the name sounds slightly familiar, but I can't put a place to it, bro. That's all right. All good, all good. That's who is he. All right, mate. Uh, you know, again, appreciate you coming on and sharing the story. Pretty much your first podcast, which we're, we're lucky enough to have you on for the you know, and yeah. share your story because yeah. again, everyone knows you. You're like you're, you're like one of those figures within the military that everyone knows. We've all heard about, yeah. Like, oh. and just licking <laughs> licking cameras and everything. So, mate, it's uh, really, uh, yeah. I'm really humbled to uh, have a chat with you today. I am too, Pete, mate. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Thanks, also, thank you very much. Oops. Oh, you're mate. I was going to say thank you for your service. Over you then. You're all right, mate. <laughs> thanks, mate. Yeah. We'll chat to you soon. See you guys. See you, mate. Thanks. What a chat from uh, the man uh, Peter Rudland. It's uh, 
Yeah, fucking crazy. It's the, it's the first time um, I've heard of the accounts of that crash. Well, not wouldn't say the accounts, just of another another take of it. Yeah. Pretty amazing how he was watching a movie and the next minute he woke up in Germany. Mm. Like, yeah. fuck, that was like, what, two, three days or yeah. at least? Yeah. A good well, like 48 hours. You know, a couple of my friends from 3 Arrow on that crash as well. Obviously, we lost uh, three of the boys and one U.S. Uh, service personnel as well. And, uh, you know, a lot of the boys were wounded in action and seven, you know, seven scars wounded. for the rest of yeah. life pretty much, you know. And yeah. it's just, you know, one part of, you know, just another, you know, part of war. Yeah. It's just. An accident. Yeah. An accident. But, you know, people, these people put their lives on the line. And I guess you just don't see it back here in Australia as a, yeah. you know, on the news they would have, you know, I'm pretty sure it was all over the news. It was all the news, but yeah. it was, you don't see the extent of it. You just hear the, yeah, a helicopter went down and, you Might know. Might in the news for like two, three days a week maybe. And then. That's it. That's yeah. the end of it. So it's good to hear the full. 12, 12 years on, there's still scars. That's it. And he's. Probably he's, hear it in his voice as well. Um, you just stop, stop talking about it and we, we could, we could, we could see. It's mm. like I wanted to stop talking. So it's. We we do thank Peter for uh, chatting about it because um could only understand can only imagine all the That's trauma it. and stuff. So, and you know the yeah. whole point of it is to share these stories with not just uh, mill guys but civvies. all our other listeners. Yeah. Yep, civvies, cops, whoever's listening. You know, there's different CEOs. aspects of someone else's life, someone else's life, and yeah. obviously wartime. But what a story though, like. SASR. I think that's cool as fuck. We went to SAS and he's like, I'm going to get out. Then he changed over to Commando yeah. when it was still 4 hours. When it was just forming into you yeah. know what it is today. So I th- I, like it's um, – I think a lot of people would think that the Commandos have been around for 20, 30 years. No. Or no. before the other week when we chatted to someone else about Commandos, it's like, no, no, they joined up like – Mid two thousands, late two thousands. Yeah, like, what? Yeah, it's it's crazy. And he had a an established deployment career as well. Mm. Timor, Iraq, Iraq with the Brits. That would have been down heavy. in Basra. Yeah, in ninety seven as well. Yeah, like, that would have been hectic. Yeah, and then far out, uh, Cambodia. Cambodia, yeah. <laughs> Pissed, just drinking booze and jumping fences, and that's fucking cool. <laughs> typical three hour. Just that wasn't a muckus. Would have been a mad trip, Cambodia. Yeah. 93, did he say? 93? 93, I think. 93, it was 93 buddy. Yeah. Fact, that would be madness. But yeah, then he went to Afghan in 2010. And um, it's pretty cool how he, he remained serving uh, for another seven years after the accident. Yeah. Um, obviously not serving to his full capacity. But yeah, defense, you know, kept him in a job. And, you know, I guess these guys don't want a med discharge, you know, they just want to go, you what know, is he, like, what is, I don't what is want he to do. Like, yeah, you can give him all the fucking money he wants. You can give him his fucking pension from DVA, whatever. But like, what the fuck is he gonna do day to day just to stay active so he doesn't doesn't have a, have a, a rotted brain and just become fucking numb? Yeah, you know, he competed in the Invictus Games, yeah, archery, uh, seated volleyball, and the wheelchair rugby, which is that'd be I've seen it's pretty wild, uh, is it? Yeah, it's just crashing into it's each other, hectic. What, what, like, were they just tackle like? No, they're in wheelchairs with like it's like Mad Max. And they got like seated bolts that hold them in, yeah. And- it's not Mad Max. It is. It's fucking just. It's brutal. Yeah, right. Fine. And um, and then he was doing fucking shooting, and him and his two other boys who were sniper quads. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, you guys are good shots." Yeah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's cool. Yeah, he's uh, definitely had a uh, distinguished. Uh, he's had career. an adventure from his birth. Yeah, he's had an adventure. Well, as he said, he was a, a legacy kid. Yeah. So it's, it's gr- actually great to hear that. 
the whole legacy story, like it, it, it worked. And he's it come, works. come back full, full circle. Full circle. And now he's putting his now time and effort into legacy. Yeah. And with, you know, he's an ambassador for the RSL, yep. which is a great thing. Again, it's just the different generations of RSL. And now we've got that modern warfare, modern warfare, modern war fighter. We've got these modern war fighters now, you know, running these, you know, assisting with the RSLs and, you know, yeah. um, I guess assimilating with the, with the modern day uh, soldier. Yeah, far out. What a story. So if you want to get in contact with... Old Petey? Pete Rudland. The SAS V Commando. Yeah, Commando and Third Battalion. Airborne. He was an airborne god. You can, I guess, uh, reach out to the RSL because he is an RSL ambassador. You can jump onto their website, rslaustralia.org. Otherwise, he does have Instagram, which is just Peter Rudland. Is that? Yep, hit him up and... Yeah, hit him up for any questions, I guess, if he gets back to you. Otherwise, I think your best bet is probably through the RSL. Yeah, it's probably easier. For us, if you want to listen to our podcasts or even find us, head to our social medias, zero.limits.podcast, uh, Instagram and Facebook. YouTube. You know, yeah, YouTube. YouTube. Give us a like, give us a follow. Say, say Leave a comment. Yeah, say g'day. Say g'day. We get a, we get a fair, fair bit of traffic now. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. And, we again, we get back to everyone that – Post something to us. Except people who post feet pics to me. <laughs> Shane sends them back. <laughs> His own feet pics. Shaved feet. Mm. <laughs> Shaved feet. If you want to listen to the podcast, head to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Podbean, Flickrbean. There's fucking heaps. There's so many different weird ones. <laughs> there's heaps. There's heaps. Uh, just Again, just search Zero Limits Podcast and you'll find us. Yeah. And again, if you can leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, Apple is the best one. It just gets our story out there and not even our story, the, you know, our guest, story. guest stories. At the end of the day, if you can help one person, you know, complete their goals or, you know, motivate them to make their bed in the morning, then that's that's our that's our tick for the day. Yeah. And hell, if you're out there driving a truck around this this, this fucking great, beautiful land of ours yeah. here in Australia, mate, just keep on trucking because I do know we've got some uh, truck drivers that, do that listen to us. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, Taxi drivers, boys going to work, Corey Jones driving to bloody work. Oh, he's Tech Corey. Yeah, right. Troy Knight listens to us still. Yeah, yeah big So it's, it is cool. We, we still keep in contact with the guys that we have chatted to. Yeah. So it's good. Uh, violent Creatures, Silent Dispatch Co., not Adfus 7.0. <laughs> not Adfus, it changed again. 10-year dig. <laughs> Version 7.0. <laughs> you boys know, yeah. <laughs> Global Warfighters is another bill. Yeah, all yeah, yeah thanks to all these guys because they keep sharing our stuff, so we're happy to keep, keep uh, plugging. Keep, uh, yeah, sharing, and, uh, sharing their word as well. The boys hanging out with the uh, wimps down at Fairfax Media, hang in there, guys, and if you want to come on for a, for a chat soon. Yeah, BRS. Yeah. Person 35, I would love to get you on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all soldiers. Soldiers, see you out there, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you on for sure. No, no names, no court marshals. Yeah. Yeah, we can we can do that thing where they can change their voices too. We just. Oh, yeah. Can you change it to like Samuel Jackson? <laughs> Motherfuckers. <laughs> Snakes on the motherfucking plane. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening and see you next time. See you. Wait, wait, wait. Now quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags. 
literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, you've got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it get your discounts. So again, jump on to threezeroscoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.